Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 82 of X-Lapsed, uh, where we're going to kick off uh, another little mini-series inside of our uh, main show here. And before we even get into it, I want to let you know that I have not been looking forward to this one. Um, I've been around the block a time or two with uh, Marvel and their um, tie-ins, their crossover tie-ins. And by around the block a time or two, I mean I've been a reader of Marvel Comics for... About 30 years now, so I've uh, seen the way the tie-ins go. And I've come to have an expectation for how vital and how worth the money these tie-ins can be. Because the the book we're going to discuss today, and I believe all four parts, uh, at least the first two, are $5 books. So, um, yeah. <laughs> now, the book we're going to be talking about is... Empire colon X-Men number one here And another thing before we start I want to make it clear here that I know absolutely nothing about Empire I have not followed any of it It doesn't involve any characters that I really could give half a damn about right now And uh, I just uh, really don't have the room in my brain for it Since it is a Marvel crossover I can probably hazard a few guesses as to what this might be comprised of And I'm thinking... Alien Invasion? That seems like a Marvel thing to do. Uh, Heroes fighting other heroes? Yeah, that's another Marvel thing they can do. Um, Some sort of circumstances where all the major heroes of the Marvel Universe have to run and get permission from S.H.I.E.L.D. to do something? That stands to reason. And of course, uh, we will probably find out that everything we thought we knew was wrong. So, there's the checklist for Marvel crossovers. It's gotta be... At least one of those things. And, you know, I could have done a bit of research on the topic. And I actually had planned to, but I didn't want to learn things that I shouldn't know yet. You know, I'm doing these as, you know, I guess in like Let's Play or Parlance, it would be, these are blind runs, right? Uh, This is stuff I don't know about. You're getting my as close to gut reaction as possible here. So I didn't want to spoil anything. Um... Uh, You know, information is kind of a currency in the comics fandom, so people like to spoil things, and I didn't want to have anything spoiled here. Uh, Despite the fact that I don't entirely have high hopes for this miniseries, I still would like to discover everything myself. Um, And I mean, honestly, I'm having trouble navigating the X-Book reading order, so I couldn't even imagine trying to get a bead on that of the wider Marvel Universe, because as far as I can tell, like, almost everything ties into Empire. So as always, we will endeavor to do our best. And, you know, really shouldn't be that difficult, right? Because this issue does have a great big number one on it. 
and of course a corresponding $5 price tag. So in theory, it should tell us everything we need to know, right? Right? Well, let's find out. This is Empire X-Men number one. It had a September 2020 cover date. The story is called Alien Plants vs. Mutant Zombies. Written by Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard. Art by Matteo Bafagni. Colors Nolan Wooded. Uh, letters VCs Clayton Cowles. Designs Tom Muller. Edits Bisa White Sabolsky. Cover price, as mentioned, $5. Went on sale July 22nd of 2020. Now we open, and it's a year ago, and we're at the Sanctum Sanctorum. Now, Doctor Strange is chatting up somebody who wants to undo a sin they'd committed. Now, we quickly find out that this is the Scarlet Witch looking for penance for the whole, you know, no more mutants thing. I tell you, this might sound weird coming from me. If you've listened to this show, um, you know, for even a little while, you'll know that I'm a huge fan of lore and playing things where they lay and appreciating the history uh, of the of the industry and of the... Uh, you know, the, the Marvel Universe, uh, you know, in this instance. But can we just, I don't know, move on from this? The No More Mutants thing was like almost 20 years ago, and it sucked. So can we, like, stop referring to it all the damn time? Can we just move on, move on from that? Anyway, she's looking for a way to cram that genie back into the bottle. To which Doctor Strange basically tells her what's done is done. And since that bell can't be unrung, perhaps she ought to look for a bigger bell to ring. And so Wanda begins to concoct ways to make things right with the mutant people. Her mind goes to the Genosian genocide, which, you know, is that Cassandra Nova thing from way in the beginning of the Grant Morrison run, E is for Extinction. And she decides that maybe she could do something to bring back the 16 million mutants that were lost that day. And so, she spends the next 11 months in Genosha trying to figure out a way to do just this. Now, I'm not sure if Wanda's been appearing in Avengers books during the past year. I'm assuming she has. It's not like anybody's going to, you know, check and make sure that this actually fits. So, Wanda does the thing. She calls forth for there to be a resurrection. And doesn't Xavier already have the market cornered on this? Shouldn't Wanda already know that? I mean, the professor kind of broadcasted that to the world during Hoxbox, didn't he? Uh, maybe he just hadn't gotten around to the Genosian dead yet. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever the case. Bada-bing, bada-boom, Wanda casts her spell or hex or whatever no longer mutant in origin ability she currently wields. And she is rather shocked by the result. But let's put a pin in that for just a moment. Scenes shift from Genosha to Wakanda. Because, of course, we need to have a Wakanda mention here. I think Marvel creators get, like, an extra stipend for making references to Wakanda. Now, you see, the Katati, an alien race, are uh, planning to invade. Because, of course, we need an alien invasion. This is a Marvel crossover, after all. Now, these are plant-like aliens. And, uh, well, that's pretty much the only thing that makes them different from the other Skate 800 alien races of the Marvel Universe. At least they don't have antlers, though. Well, not in the mammalian sense, anyway. Now, they're using Genosha as sort of a staging area to plan their attack. So they're not in Wakanda, but they're planning to attack Wakanda. Genosha is close enough to where they can, you know, get a little bit of a feel for the area. And we meet a soldier named Rutabaga. Really? Anyone listening ever eat a Rutabaga? I'm not sure I would even be able to point one out in a lineup. But, uh, anywho... 
The whole thing here is that they find Wakanda a suitable place for growth due to its rich soil, and the fact that it's the one place on Marvel Earth that even the mainstream can name without having to hit Wikipedia, so doubly a pleasure. Now he checks in with another veg type named Kukoi? Kukoi? Q-Q-O-I. Kukoi? Uh, now they talk about the fact that there be a lot of vibranium there, and the locals realize its value, and they wonder if these meat types might be a problem. They've actually got themselves a meaty hostage right now, as a matter of fact, and they decide, hey, let's interrogate him and find out. We find out that this hostage is actually a putrefied zombie who's missing his jaw. So everything he says just sounds like nonsense. You know, if you try talking without moving your jaw, I guess it would be kind of difficult. The plant types hand him his jaw, which thankfully had recently fallen off just now, so it was in within reach, I guess. And so our meat hostage begins to talk some sense. Now it turns out he's called Explodey Boy. Really? I hate starting a sentence with, is it just me? But is it just me, or is this just a little too cute? Eh. Anywho, the sensational character find of 2020, Explodey Boy, tells the veg types that, well, they're kind of boned, because they landed on an island that's full of mutants. And mutants are humans, just with powers. And they ask what his power is, and, I mean, his name is Explodey Boy, so it doesn't take a rocket surgeon, or even a tree surgeon in this instance, he blows up. He blows stuff up. And, well, that's exactly what he does here. Now, Rutabaga reacts by slicing E.B.'s left arm off, which only winds up uh, tickling him. Confused, Ruta asks why E.B. ain't dead, to which he learns that, duh, he's already dead, or undead. Suddenly, there's a rumbling on the horizon, and before long, the entire place is crawling with stampeding zombified mutants. Title page, then a roll call with our, our credits? Wait, they can do that? So we, we didn't need to waste three pages every single issue of Dawn of X on this bit? All right, I'm, I'm not holding my breath that it'll last much longer than this issue, but hey, at least we know they can do it. So let's do our roll call. Magic, Penance, Angel, Black Tom Cassidy, Professor X, Magneto, and Multiple Man. Get back to comics, and we're in Paris, France. Now, Monet and Angel are on official X-Corp business, and are about to meet with a corporation called Noblesse Pharmaceuticals, or Noblesse. Uh, Ilyan is there, too, but we'll learn a bit more as to why that is in just a minute. Now, they're having a bite to eat at first, and they're being well, rather catty toward one another. They talk about having to do this because Sunspot had buggered off to outer space, which, hey, continuity, how about that? Inside, just before the meeting's about to begin, Ilyana lets it slip that she's only there to keep an eye on Monet and Warren for the professor in order to make sure they don't screw this up. Now, this rightly ticks them off, as you might imagine. Ilyana then doubles down and says she's uh, monitoring them for redundancy. Now, at this point, Warren and Monet are all screw this and decide to head back to Krakoa to confront the professor about this nonsense. They reschedule their meeting with the pharma for a later date. Back on Krakoa, and Black Tom is... Well, he's Black Tomming. That's what he does. He talks about a Krakoan gateway that's currently on the fritz. And he guesses as to where that gate might be? Hmm. Now, Xavier says he'll send a team out to take a look at it. Just then, though, Warren approaches to talk to the talk about the X-Corp potential redundancy problem. Professor X basically flips the script and sweet-talks Warren into understanding what he really meant by redundancy. Now, you see, it's not that Warren wasn't good at what he was supposed to be doing, but instead, 
ensuring that X-Corp is the best use of Warren in the first place, because Warren is so special. Whatever the case, Angel buys it, and so the situation doesn't escalate any further, thankfully. Seeing an opportunity to do some good, Angel decides that he'll check into the weirdness of the gateway to Genosha. Magneto says he could put together a team of four to do so, so we've got Angel, Magic, and Monet. Warren wonders what just might be waiting for them in Genosha and requests maybe maybe more than just four, right? Magneto repeats that Warren can only take one more citizen with him. Well, if you saw the roll call, then you already know where this is headed. Bada-bing, bada-boom, we're on Genosha, courtesy of a magic warp, and it's our trio plus Jamie Madrix. Madrox, however you say that. I don't know if I've ever said that out loud. Um, now, before they can get down to business at hand, they hear a rumbling. You know, the same rumbling we heard back like a hundred or so pages ago. They see the veg types running like hell. Moments later, they see what they're running from, and it's the zombified mutant meat types. Monet then penances up, then she and Magic get to work, slaughtering both groups. Okay. Uh, they don't get much time to rest, however, as Magic accurately points out that this felt more like a wave one than an entirety of a battle. Off to the side, Jamie can tittles fiddle with the busted gateway and suggests that it's not working simply because it's overgrown with weeds. So Jamie snaps up 30 or so dupes and gets to work pruning the portal. Just then, another rumbling, and it's time for wave two. Here's the thing, though. While they're zombies, yes, they're also mutants. So it stands to reason that they've got the appropriate genes in order to pass through to Krakoa through the gateway. And it looks like that's exactly what they intend to do. Only before they can, they wind up splattered with this green goop, which, I, I don't know, renders them inert. So you might be asking, what's this green goop and where did it originate? Well, all we got to do is flip the page to see... Ah, son of a... Bitch, it's horticulture. The old ladies. Really? Come on. Well, that's, uh... That's Empire colon X-Men number one. Next episode, we will do Empire colon X-Men number two. But, uh... Yeah, let's talk about this. Why not? First, I mean, the old ladies. Really? I mean, this series wasn't hard enough to get into as it was, right? Uh, now we got to deal with Sophia Petrillo cursing like a sailor for, I'm assuming, the next three issues. I really wish I could find this funny. I really do. It is something that I've actually gotten clapped back for, because a lot of the folks listening do find this funny. I just can't. I don't know why I can't. I wish I could. I just don't. <laughs> And when I see them here, I mean, we've been talking about them a lot lately. Uh, they seem to have come up in the mailbag, uh, like, the past three or four episodes, and then here they are. It's like it's like that Bloody Mary in the mirror thing. You say their name three times, and, and here they come. Now, let's, let's actually start by talking about this as a part of a whole, you know? This is entangled and intertwined with the Empire mass crossover event, right? Which, of course, I have absolutely no knowledge nor interest about. But I am an X-Men fan, and generally speaking, an X-Men completionist, so here we are. I want to refer to something that Alan Moore once wrote regarding mass crossovers. This is probably around 1987 or so, while he was putting together his pitch for Twilight of the Superheroes for DC Comics. Now, a full discussion of that is available in the archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. 
Now, in his mind, the perfect mass crossover would have sensible and logical reasons for crossing over with other titles so that fans would not feel cheated. Okay, let's stop there and ask. Does this X-Men or Empire colon X-Men fit the bill? Well, in the broadest sense, yes. Yes. If an X-Men fan has no interest in Empire, well, then it stands to reason that they would just skip this miniseries, right? Uh, I've actually reached out to um, some listeners of the show because I, as I was putting together these notes, I felt like I was being too negative on this book, and I wanted to touch base with some of the listeners of the show to see what they felt about this. And I heard from some that said they just skipped it because they didn't have interest in Empire. They just wanted to know about the X-Men. And so they skipped it. So that is definitely something that you can do. Some other listeners actually said they felt cheated, which is exactly what Moore was concerned with, with his uh, mass crossover idealization or whatever here. But uh, So yes, if you don't want to know about Empire, you don't buy this miniseries. Though that doesn't address the fact that we will be seeing actual Empire crossover issues of X-Men Volume 5, but... We'll talk about those when we get there, because I don't know what kind of animal, plant, vegetable, mineral, whatever those are going to be. Those could be the best things in the world, or they could be not. We'll find out when we get there. I'm not going to prejudge it. Now, similarly, across the table, right, if you're a Marvel Universe fan who has no interest in the X-Men, hey, then you can easily skip this as well. You won't feel cheated because you didn't bother buying it in the first place. Now, that said, and I am... I was going to say it can very well might be projecting, but I'm almost definitely projecting. When Marvel puts out a gaggle of crossover event tie-ins, they're banking on the rabid completionists and the lapsed casuals. Uh, Back when we talked about the four types of fans, these would be the group three, right? The ones who come for the big events, which is why we keep getting all these big events. Now, that's looking at it broadly. Now let's take a step back and look at this simply as a story. And it's hard to say whether or not a story deserves to exist when we're talking about a field as stunty and uneven as superhero comics. But for the sake of simplicity, let's try. I'm going to need some help here from people more embedded in Empire, so I can pose a question. Does this Empire colon X-Men add a single thing to your Empire reading experience? other than the extra 20 bucks you need to spend in order to catch them all, right? As an ignorant outsider looking in, which I am, though, I mean, I have more than enough Marvel crossover experience to recognize the patterns, I can't think of any real, which is to say not financially motivated, reason for this to exist. If what we're getting here is going to be on the fringes of Empire, We're going to be spending a bunch of time and money on a story that, at best, might get a passing mention in a panel or two of the main story. That's a best-case scenario. I could be mistaken, but that's the pattern. Now, a question that I can answer personally is, would reading this issue of Empire X-Men inspire an X-Men fan who isn't really following the main Marvel Universe to dig into the wider Empire event? Speaking personally, no. Absolutely not. I might even have less interest after reading this, and I didn't think that was possible. I mean, do any of us really need another damn Marvel alien invasion story in our lives? Can we even tell them apart anymore? I mean, what's going to be announced for next year? 2021, is it going to be a Badoon invasion? 
And then in 2022, it'll be a, a brood invasion. Then in 2023, maybe maybe the Phoenix Force will come back and it'll split among the billion dead asparagus people that were killed during Dark Phoenix Saga and that they'll all come and attack the Earth. While at the same time, all the heroes battle other heroes on the streets of New York. We don't need this crap, do we? I mean, I don't. And, and I mean, I, I can't hold this against our creative team here. They're playing the ball where it lie. And, uh... You know, I, I'm sure that they didn't say, "Oh, we want to be a part of this. I'm sure it was just like, hey, you're going to be a part of this. And again, this is me projecting. But it's like, I have less interest in this than I did before I opened the book. And that's not good. Granted, I'm just one idiot with a microphone. You know, I'm just one idiot who's in one corner of the Marvel Universe. So take anything I say with uh, whatever, you need, whatever you need to take it with, I guess. Uh, now let's... Let's jump to the other side of the fence here. Let's say you're a Marvel fan. Pure Marvel. Which is to say, you buy the things that Marvel tells you to buy. Which, I mean, let's be real here, for the better part of the past decade, really didn't include a push toward the X-Men books. Because Marvel really didn't seem to want those to succeed all that much. But you, as the dutiful Marvel consumer, decide that you're all in on Empire. Okay, so... You're a Marvel fan, you read Avengers books, Fantastic Four, you're reading Empire because, you know, it's the big story of the year. Now, would anything you read here in Empire X-Men inspire you to come back and pick up more X-Men books? If I were a betting man, which thankfully I'm not, I'd venture to say more than likely no. No. Uh, This takes for granted that everybody reading this is familiar with everything that's gone on in the X-Books over the past year. And I'd guess that a great portion of the folks who were duped into buying this had no clue, or not as much of a clue, of what's gone on over the past year that they'd need in order to get as much out of it as they might have otherwise. Now, don't get me wrong. I am a big fan of, re- of rewarding seasoned readers, right? I don't believe we should have our hands held. I don't think things should be dumbed down. But this is the first issue of a crossover with the wider Marvel Universe. And it gives nothing to entice a new or ex-lapsed reader into coming back into the fold. Though, I mean, I doubt that was the goal in the first place. That isn't to say that the folks involved in it didn't want it to be successful, because I'm sure they did, right? But the goal here was inflating the page count and the bottom line of Empire, and and not a whole lot more. With that out of the way, let's get into the issue here, which, again, I want to remind everyone, costs $5. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, it had an interesting concept, but not such a great execution. I mean, we're still drawing from the House of M situation, which, you know, really should be left lying at this point. I mean, they've been milking that for a long time now, to the point where that teat's only got powder left in it. It's just, it's done. Now, the idea that Wanda would want to raise a whole bunch of zombie mutants as a form of penance, yeah, that's, that's an interesting concept. But, I mean, the entire premise of post-Hoxpox X-Men is raising the friggin' dead. So this feels incredibly redundant. I mean, perhaps during a different time, this would have made more impact. Or it would have just been something. Here, it's just like, okay, she's doing exactly what the X-Men are doing anyway. So, where's the oomph? What's the point? 
Now, something else we've talked about a lot during our discussions here is uh, talking about the attempts at humor and comedy in the Dawn of X books. And I think, yeah, I think even saying they've been uneven might be a little bit too kind. Uh, you know, especially, you know, the feedback I'm getting on a lot of the attempts at humor. Let's start with Explody Boy. Get the hell out of here with that. This isn't funny. This isn't cute. Explody Boy? Uh, is, um, okay And of course, the long-awaited return of the Golden Girls um, I gotta ask, did Hickman actually plant them in X-Men number 3 Simply to revisit them in, in a meaningless crossover miniseries? I mean, I mean, I guess it fits And I can 100% respect the forethought But still, I very nearly tossed this book across the room when I got to that page i not a fan of those characters I wish I could be I wish I could be, but I'm not. Um, I like the idea of the urgency of uh, fearing that these mutant zombies might make their way to Krakoa. And part of me, actually all of me, was hoping that that's where the story was going. I was hoping that these Genosian uh, zombie mutants would broach the or breach the uh, the portal. And just overrun Krakoa, so we would have like this alien inv- uh, this zombie invasion on Krakoa's story, instead of, well, what it looks like we're gonna get instead. So I was, I was, uh, I saw the zig. I wanted the zig. I expected the zig, and then we got the zag, and it was, it was, uh, you know, about as funny as brew eating the king egg. So, which is to say, not at all. So. I, I can't really think of much more to say about this one That wouldn't be just me repeating myself And and really just beating up on a book That doesn't deserve being beaten up on um, This is just a These are mostly Almost 100% Chris problems You know um, I haven't talked to anyone Who actually enjoyed this yet uh, But they haven't been quite as Vitriolic as I have I don't know, it's this feels like the perfect recipe for a book that I just don't need in my life, unfortunately. And I, I suppose it might go without saying that uh, I didn't care for this. Uh, I am also not looking forward to the next three issues. And I, you know, if this is somehow your first episode of this program, rest assured I'm not usually this negative, and I hate being this negative about anything we cover here. But this one looks like it's going to be something of a chore. Um, I'm being completely honest here I've been taken to task before for being too kind to books So I'm not an overly negative guy This is just a perfect recipe for something that I don't want to read Now at least when we come out the other end of Empire We'll be able to talk about the first issue of The New X Factor Which I've heard a lot of good things about So yeah, we'll keep the eyes on the prize, right? And hey, you know, honestly if I turn out to actually come around to enjoying Empire X-Men over the course of the next three issues and episodes, I will fully 100% admit that I was wrong here. Um, I hope that's what happens. I hope that's the case. I hope I come around, and uh, I hope something good comes out of this. Uh, though, yeah, I keep thinking back to the last time we did something like this. The last time we stepped away from the main books and looked at a miniseries, it was the X-Men Fantastic Four. Which I had high expectations for And while it was a fun story It really didn't live up to what I had expected from it And of course we know In the recent Fantastic Four number 26 It was all undone anyway 
and Franklin's, you know, whole DNA makeup has been, you know, refabricated or whatever. And so, I mean, hopes are not high for any sort of uh, miniseries, any sort of crossover event tie-in. So many of us, you know, me talking and so many of you listening, we've been burned by these uh, these tie-in miniseries before. We know the the lay of the land, and we know how unimportant they're going to wind up being. But, uh, you know, before we get into the mailbag, uh, you know, sorry if I'm being too negative on this. I really don't like being negative on these books. I, I spend so many hours of the day talking and writing about these books that to do it with the purpose of, you know, spewing vitriol on it, that's just not worth anybody's time. So this one was a pass for me. Not my cup of tea, but fingers crossed it'll get better as we work our way through. And of course, you know, onward and upward after that as it is. Now let's get into the mailbag. Uh, we're going to start with Damien, and he's talking about X-Force number 10. And he's answering one of my questions here, because I asked if veg was like some sort of a Britishism. <laughs> because, boy, we saw the word veg a lot in X-Force number 10. Damien says, veg is a very British term. I genuinely don't believe I've said the word vegetables aloud for a couple of decades. It might help to stop if it's seeming too repetitive if Percy alternated it with veggies, which can be used interchangeably with veg, but can also refer to vegetarians. And, I mean, we say veggies all the time here, too, but it's just like, we were just hammered with the veg, weren't we? And I might be projecting. I'm definitely projecting, but I feel like Percy was like a little too proud of his use of veg here. I mean, without hyperbole, Black Tom must have said it a couple dozen times. Though in fairness, for all I know, Percy himself is British. I I don't know. (laughs) Maybe he is. Maybe he's not. Whatever the case, too damn many uh, mentions of the word veg here. Damien continues. On to the bulk of the story, it seems like they're setting up Beast's descent into being a bad guy. The closing scene set, kind of sets up Gene, Wolverine, and Cyclops against Beast. I can see that being fertile ground for stories. And yes, that's definitely a potential interesting angle that they could uh, they could do should they decide to go that route. I just hope it stays in the one book. You know what I mean? I hope it doesn't result in there being two ongoing X-Force books. Which, sadly, I can totally see. Um, I, I don't want to see an X-Force schism. And then we split into another. Do we, I mean, the this line is getting bloated enough as it is. We don't need a second X-Force book. I might be mistaken and conflating, but I'm pretty sure it was actually a time where Marvel was putting out three ongoing X-Force books. I believe there's an X-Force, an Uncanny X-Force, and a Cable and X-Force. So, I mean, I could already see the announcement that we're getting another volume of, like, Uncanny X-Force, or maybe, you know, the launch of Wolverine and X-Force. Fingers crossed that that does not happen. Damien wraps up with, By the way, I'm with you and wishing that they hadn't shown the Gene-Wolverine relationship on panel. I preferred the X-Men number one device where it was there for the shippers, but could be ignored. And yeah, you know, subtlety hasn't always been the strength of X-Force. It's been better of late, but it usually wears its intentions, like, right in plain view. Um, Now, the ignorability of the Gene-Logan relationship, to me, was its biggest strength. Because it didn't, it wasn't like overt, but it also made us think twice about every scene that featured any two members of our love triangle, right? We would read into things. Even, I mean, even a scene with Scott and Logan, 
without Jean there. People read into that scene. And now it's like more or less confirmed that, yeah, Jean's just banging them both. <laughs> you know, I feel like the, the the nuances of not knowing were so much more important than the revelation that, you know, what it is, is. And I think, you know, going back to, you know, the, my entire X-Men comics, you know, fandom career, I've always been more a fan of Logan wanting what he can't have, uh, while harboring, like, an almost, almost like a reverence for Jean, you know what I mean? Like, he has this crazy deep love for her, but also this admiration and respect. So I don't see him actually giving in to his urges, right? I see him as having Jean on such a pedestal that he'd think her being with him would somehow cheapen her, if that makes any sense. I mean, I mean, talk about letting one's own headcanon run away with them here, but that's the way I always viewed their relationship. Like, ideally, Wolverine would be with Jean, but he holds her in such high regard that she's too good for him. And he knows she's too good for him, and she wouldn't—he wouldn't let her like sully herself as to being with him. Uh, I'm not sure where they go from here, and unfortunately, I'm less interested in finding out than I was before reading it. So, we'll see where that goes. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and for clarifying Veg, Damien. I very much appreciate it. Next, Joe Crawford is sharing with us his rankings for the Dawn of X number fives. He says, I just finished Dawn of X Book 5. Ranked 1 to 6 are New Mutants, X-Force, Marauders, X-Men, Excalibur, and Fallen Angels. To which uh, we're pretty close on our rankings here. Um, I'm Looking back, I'm not sure why I would rank X-Men as being better than X-Force, though. Because if I'm remembering right, the X-Men issue was that weird one-off having to do with the Children of the Vault, which basically ignored the fact that X-23 was part of Fallen Angels, and it kind of relinquished her role as Wolverine Jr. But for some reason, I did rank X-Men higher than X-Force. I don't recall why. And, you know, back to Joe's list here, it's uh, it's another uh, another Excalibur and Fallen Angels anchor. Uh, well, I guess luckily you've only got one more issue of Fallen Angels left. And also... Luckily, you only have one more issue of the Morgan Le Fay story in Excalibur. After that, you get you get some fun stuff. So just get through number six, and everything will be smooth sailing. Joe wraps up with, The Art in New Mutants is amazing. I like the book a lot. And, of course, he's talking about Rod the Ridiculous Reese. I mean, this guy is amazing. Uh, just inhuman in talent here. I, I love his work. It's just it's phenomenal stuff. But thank you so much for sharing your list there, Joe, and your thoughts on the issue fives. And we're going to wrap up with a missive from our friend Al Sedano, who's talking about X-Men number two. He says, it's funny, but it seems like it's easier for you to post a new episode each day than it is for me to listen and comment. Let's Let's not also forget how often I'm able to get my own episodes out, so thanks for giving me a complex. And uh, obsessiveness is nothing to covet, so don't worry about that. I'm a very strange man. Uh, Anyway, I at least have some thoughts on X-Men number two. He says, First of all, I can see what you're saying about how Cyclops is acting with his kids, but I did enjoy it. It felt very dad. Also, I seem to remember Scott getting very much into his new life roles before things inevitably go to crap. Look at how he was in the beginning of his marriage with Madeline. He was very into being a husband, at least from what I remember. 
Maybe he's trying to enjoy this before all hell eventually breaks loose. Though yes, perhaps Xavier getting killed should qualify. Maybe he was just repressing. I know weird, I know weird for Cyclops to do, but it's possible. And, you know, you might be right. Maybe he is just trying to, you know, make his best go at it. And he's only acting the way he thinks he ought to. I've, uh, you know, commented that he's like the wacky suburban dad. He's the sitcom dad. And uh, to me, that doesn't feel like Cyclops, but he could just be overcorrecting. He might know that the happiness and the peace that he now has in his life is very likely short-lived, so he's just going to make the best of it. And I totally forgot. I mean... Yeah, Xavier had his brains blown out in uh, in X Force, <laughs> and I think it got a very passing mention in here, which was kind of strange. Uh, Xavier's death really didn't get the uh, didn't really get the reaction I feel like it should have. Uh, Al continues. Also, I don't think we're going to get a roster for this title. I think technically everyone on Krakoa is now an X Man, so this title will be about the main events happening to this new nation. To which, bingo, you got it in one. To me, this is the, this is as though X-Men Unlimited was pushed to the forefront of the line. So it's not so much the straw that stirs the drink, but instead it kind of guides the way and plants seeds that'll be explored at a later date. In a lot of ways, I can appreciate that. You know? In another way, though, I see it as kind of gimmicky and... I don't want to say lazy, but just just gimmicky. Because uh, Claremont was able to plant seeds just about anywhere, right? We knew he could have a half dozen subplots bubbling along, and it wouldn't derail the book, and everything would unfold as it should. Here, it's like we're, we're devoting an entire volume of the flagship book to plant seeds. To me, that just feels... I don't know, like it feels uh, it feels too extra, right? And it's giving us information because I mean, you gotta bloat it. It can't just be a, a like a bubble and subplot. It has to have backstory. It has to have all this stuff to fill an entire comic book. To me, I mean, you know how I am with my opinions here. If it's my opinion versus someone else's, I always say the other person's right and I'm wrong. So maybe I'm wrong. It just feels like. Uh, I don't know. I, I just expected more out of the X Men title, and uh, this, you know, these one and dones or two and dones really just don't do it for me. Uh, back to Al. He says, Speaking of all these new X Men, is it weird that I trust Apocalypse a lot more than Sinister? Maybe it has to do with the future issues of Hoxpox, as we know Sinister will be a traitor, but not Apocalypse. And, you know, I don't know. Uh, I'm a bit iffy on them both. Um, there are times where both seem. Somewhat trustworthy And there are other times where I wouldn't trust them with my lasagna recipe <laughs> You know, they uh, they seem sketchy, really sketchy at times But other times they just seem like good soldiers, right? They do make for very interesting flavor for this era And I will say that I'm enjoying them both far more than I thought I would when we started this I thought it was just going to be like, you know, the square peg into the round hole with Apocalypse and Sinister And uh, so far so good so far, so good. I'm enjoying Apocalypse's, most of Apocalypse's bits in Excalibur. And Sinister's been pretty good in Hellions. So, not bad. Not bad at all. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us, Al. I really appreciate you keeping up and uh, and keeping on with the uh, the Dawn of X uh, anthologies here. It's really, really cool to hear your thoughts. 
and I love the fact that we've got folks at different stages in the uh, in the read through here. So we get to address everything. It keeps me on my heels, on my toes, I guess, not my heels, my toes, and uh, helps to refresh me when I have forgotten some things. Because uh, I mean, over the course of the past few months, we've read well 82 issues of this stuff. So it's uh, sometimes they blend. So. It's nice to get a reminder every now and again, so thank you so much for that. Now, if anyone else out there would like to share their thoughts with me, I'm a fairly easy guy to find. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or at uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com that's dedicated to these xlapsed family of shows. Uh, you could talk to us about all sorts of stuff over at 90s X-Men on Facebook, or you could listen to everything in the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. One down, three to go for Empire colon X-Men. Uh, I hope I wasn't too negative. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll say we're going to be cautiously optimistic moving forward. We're going to be open to having our minds blown, or at least changed, uh, I can say that with 100% sincerity that I will try to uh, remove my bias and see if we can uh, accept these a little bit better moving forward. But I want to thank everyone for sharing your time with me today and sharing your ears and sharing your thoughts. Uh, and until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 83 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, yeah, we're we're still with Empire. Um, I'm going to be straight up with you guys here. I've uh, been sitting on the notes for this episode for a couple days now because I was just trying to think of nice things to say and uh, really kind of struggled with this one because I don't want to come across as being overly negative. I don't want to come across as being dismissive. I don't want to come across as being what so many people think seasoned comics fans are. You know what I mean? But uh, 
sometimes something just is what it is, uh, as, as much as it sucks to say that. Is this the case with Empire X-Men number two? Well, I, I guess we'll, uh, we'll find out as we go along. Which is to say, we are about to discuss Empire, colon, X-Men number two, which had an October 2020 cover date. The story's called Growing Strong, written by Jerry Duggan, Ben Percy, and Leo Williams. So it's uh, more of our Dawn of X uh, writing team here. We've got uh, Duggan from Marauders, Percy from Wolverine and uh, X-Force, and we have Leo Williams from the upcoming X-Factor. Art by Lucas Wernick, colors Nolan Wooded. Lead is VCs Clayton Cowles, designs Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman. Edits Beasel White Sabolski, cover price five friggin' dollars. Went on sale August 5th, 2020. Now we start right away with the roll call. We've got Magic, Penance, Angel, Multiple Men, Black Tom Cassidy, Opal, Edith, Augusta, Lily, and Explody Boy. I'm already not in the mood for this. Um, double page spread of creds to follow, and then we get into comics content. So yeah, we open with the old ladies being wildly funny with the cursing and whatnot. Um, they were somehow able to, act to access the Krakoan gateway, but that only gets a mention at this point. Uh, no explanation about how they can do so. Unless I somehow missed an explanation that they made back in X-Men number 3 back in the long ago. Because... To be perfectly honest, I did kind of glaze over during parts of that one. Uh, now, they lay eyes on Angel and begin to swoon because, you know, he's one handsome dude. Augusta and Opal then double-team a veg alien and hack him to pieces. Now, if you recall, Horticulture's gimmick is that they would collect samples of plants and stuff. And boy, I really wish my autocorrect didn't change Horticulture to Horticulture every single time. Now, I have to write it with a hyphen so it doesn't autocorrect. Anyway... Now, Warren, he tries to stop them from, well, basically doing what they already did. I mean, he watched them chop up the veg alien, right? Anyway, Augusta responds by spraying him in the face with a green mist, which causes him to view the old bags as, uh, well, more supple, shapely, and far younger ladies. And so Warren is completely under their spell, willing to do their bidding. Now, this pheromone spray, or whatever it is, does not work on M nor Ilyana, but as our camera pans out, we see that it did affect our multiple man. And so he heads over to the Estelle Getty lookalike in the big old Professor X chair to do her bidding. Isn't Jamie married? I mean, whatever happened to Layla Miller? Did I, I, I must have missed something, because I, I don't know that we've seen her in ages. Maybe even since the, uh, the old Peter David run there. It's an odd... Um, well, maybe it's not very odd. Who knows? Anyway, that rumbling starts again. Remember the rumbling from last episode and issue? It looks like we're in for another wave. Now, Augusta asks Angel to fly her up in the sky to get a better look, and also to sing her some Neil Diamond. And so, to a bit of Sweet Caroline, that's exactly what he does. To which I say, come on, Sweet Caroline, that's the lazy pick. Now, if you want to impress us, maybe do some Cracklin' Rosie. You know, Sweet Caroline, everybody knows that one. Anyway, they find out that, yes, indeed, there is another wave coming. And so Magic and Opal decides it's probably best for both sides here to set aside their differences, at least for the moment. So, yeah, we go right into a big fight scene, during which, uh, well, now here's a little uh, seasoned X-Fan bait. Uh, Magic, she's fighting a veggie alien, right? 
And she tells this veggie alien that uh, once back in the long ago, the X-Men once killed a billion broccolis. Well, first of all, they were asparaguses. Second, that wasn't the X-Men, that was Dark Phoenix. Third, even if it was the X-Men, is the complete planetary genocide of a civilization something we really want to brag about? Really? Uh, Kind of a lazy attempt at playing to the cheap seats here. I mean, I got the reference, I just didn't pop for it. Anyway, Magic then decides to employ her friends from Limbo to serve as a cleanup crew, and with the wave of the Soul Sword, that's exactly what she does. Now, it's worth noting here that Magic is cursing about as much as the old biddies, and it's a... Yeah, whatever novelty it might have had, that ship sailed ages ago. This is not funny. Okay, nearby, we join a veggie man at the Katati warship, and he's being followed by friggin' Explodey Boy. Now, after claiming the, that the Kotati have already taken root here, the plant man employs a sort of self-destruct feature on the craft. Now, this causes like a giant bulb, not like a light bulb, but like a plant bulb to open up, which spews forth a whole bunch of roots and vines. It also bubbles into this really disgusting seed pod, which winds up trapping Madrox, M, and half of the horde culture. Magic tries to cut through it, but alas, her soul sword cannot. We jump back to Krakoa, where Black Tom is Black Tomming. Uh, the Krakoa Genosha Gate is now completely down, and so he tries to figure out a way to be of use. And um, he somehow finagles his way into the Krakoan pollen, dirt, fungus, and mold on the bottom of Angel's boot. Huh? Okay, well this causes him to manifest as a teeny tiny Tom avatar, which would be kind of cute if it weren't just so try-hard and contrived. Now he shows up on Angel's shoulder and he gets a gander at the madness going on down below. Now, upon reconnoitering with the rest of the crew, one of the Horde culture hags suggests that, uh, hey, if they were to concoct some black walnut trees, those would attack the roots of this seed pond gimmick. And so, Black Tom, with the aid of Krakoa itself, complies. Unfortunately, this only seems to anger the seed pod. But on the bright side, it spits Jamie Madrox out. He tells his teammates they, you know, whatever you're doing, stop it because it nearly killed Monet. Now, if you remember, Krakoa feeds off psychic energy and whatnot, at least when it's convenient to the story. Magic realizes that she's going to need some psychic backup, right? And so, she asks the old hags if they'd reopen the Krakoa Genosha gateway, and they refuse. And so, Magic locks them in limbo until they change their mind, which they do pretty quickly. Then Magic, as war captain, remember she is a Krakoan captain, she delivers a call to arms to any psychic mutants on Krakoa, And we wrap up this issue with the cavalry arriving, and it's a real who's who. We see Quentin Quaya, the Stepford Cuckoos, Exodus, Mastermind, Lady Mastermind, Saline, Sassy Sinister, and... The friggin' Shadow King? The Shadow King is on Krakoa? You gotta be kidding me. Well, okay, well that's where we leave it. Uh, Next episode, Empire rolls on, and uh... Well, I guess at least we're halfway through it, huh? So how about we talk about it? Um, Yeah, still not loving this. I still feel like we're kind of the victim of a Marvel grift here. Uh, They're banking on people like me and and maybe some of you to buy these things. Um, And I mean, I have been that uh, Marvel zombie, or the X-Men zombie anyway, for quite a while now. I mean, 
I did the same thing with things like Uncanny X-Force Fear Itself, Civil War X-Men, Civil War II X-Men, Secret Invasion X-Men, Dark Reign X-Men, War of the Realms Uncanny X-Men, Chaos War X-Men, the insane amount of Secret Wars minis from 2015, and I'm sure there's a handful that I'm forgetting. These tie-in miniseries is, 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 are mostly pointless and are so far in the fringes of what's actually happening in the main event that they just plain don't matter. And I mean, okay, yes, in reality, these are all about making a buck. I get that, but I'm also trying to deliver my usual biting analysis. So I, uh, you know, I hate to stumble behind the mic and just say, yes, this was pointless, but they only made this to cash in on completionists, and to that end, I guess they were successful. Talk to you all again real soon. I mean, that wouldn't be a good show. Not that, not that you know, what you're listening to now is a good show, but that would be even worse. So let's try to justify the existence of this issue, okay? While I didn't dig it, I will say it went down a little easier than the first issue. Now, maybe... Maybe that's because now I sort of kind of have an expectation. Whereas with number one, I wasn't sure exactly what we were in for, right? What we were going to be getting ourselves into. Maybe my caution going in to the first issue was perhaps tempered with a bit more optimism than I consciously realized. And so when reality actually set in like a ton of bricks and I realized that we were getting this, you know, funny ha-ha with the explodey boy and the golden girls... Maybe my disappointment was compounded a bit. Maybe it got the best of me. Maybe. I don't know. Let's talk about what worked here. Now, this is going to sound crazy, but uh, with less try-hard dialogue, the old ladies might just work. Now, I want to be clear. I don't have a problem with their motivation. I don't have a problem with their actual existence. It's just the junior high school presentation of them that I can't stand. I mean, this is a Chris problem, to be sure, and it goes back to that rhetorical question that I have been asking a lot lately, which is, wouldn't it be funny if... Which, as I've said time and again, the answer is, more often than not, no. No, it would not be. Uh, Explodey Boy, he falls into the same sort of pocket for me. You know, wouldn't it be funny if... There was this mutant who blew stuff up, and he was called Explodey Boy. Well, no. No, it wouldn't be funny. It's not. This is like the worst sort of commercial comedy. You know, this is the sort of tripe that you'd see in like a Geico or a progressive auto insurance ad. I mean, you ever notice how every single commercial on TV right now tries to be funny? And how zero of them actually are? You know, those ad wizards would have come up with something just as expired as Explodey Boy. So, if it weren't for, if we were able to somehow walk back the try-hard dialogue, I could see horde culture not being something that makes me want to hurl my book across the room. Explodey Boy is Explodey Boy. (laughs) That's not going to be something I'm going to come around to. You know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'll be surprised. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. And uh, Explodey Boy will wind up on my, you know, top X amount of characters of 2020. Who knows? What else? What else? Um, I really don't care about yet another Marvel alien invasion. I don't. Um, I don't think there's anything that can be done that can change that. These things are interchangeable. You don't know what year it is. You don't know what crossover it is. It's just more aliens coming to the Marvel Earth, right? 
that is not a fault of this book in particular. I mean, I mean, even just in the X books, we're coming out of an attempted brood invasion, right? X Men, uh, what nine and ten was the brood. There's more than one string on the guitar, Marvel. Maybe try plucking at some of the others every once in a while, because this is just too much of the same. At least, I will say there hasn't been any hero versus hero nonsense. At least not in this miniseries. Maybe the main Empire, um, you know, maxi-series event spectacular is full of, you know, Captain America punching the thing. Who knows? It's not here, so we'll just pretend we're ostriches, head in the sand, not paying attention to the bigger picture. For all the good and all the bad that implies. Let's see, uh, you know, like I said in the synopsis, I get the reference magic makes to killing the broccolis. But it's ill-thought-out shorthand writing like this that affects the narrative of these books to the more casual reader, right? Now let's remember that this is a tie-in in a mainstream Marvel crossover event, so... There might, be come, there might be people coming over here who are not familiar with the X-Men, right? So now any of those folks here, folks who are not familiar with the X-Men, not familiar with the lore, who reads this, they're going to think that, oh yeah, the X-Men once killed a billion Dabari aliens. When no, no they didn't. That was Phoenix. I mean, this is the sort of shorthand writing that... Uh, causes folks to insist that Jean Grey dies every other issue, right? I mean, we've all heard, oh, she's dead again. It's like, no, well, let's let's actually go back and look at how many times she's died. She's died less than most of the other X-Men. But we're always stuck on Jean dying because that's the narrative. That's the, the shorthand. That's the, that's the, you know, 250 character tweet version of what happens. It's lazy, it's pandering, and it's just plain incorrect to boot. And again, they were asparaguses, not broccolis. Let's see, the art. Let's talk about the art. I found the art to be better in this issue than in number one, so there's that. Well, at the same time, it wasn't such a jarring difference from one issue to the other. I, st- I thought it was the same artist who just uh, was a little bit sharper with this issue. And no, it's a, it's a different artist altogether. Same inker, but a different, a different penciler. So I liked that a lot. thought the art was really, really nice. And uh, I guess I am kind of looking forward to seeing the psychics get involved next issue. I just hope that, you know, they don't kill Quentin Choir again. I will say, I mean, I made a point of pointing this out. Uh, we see the Shadow King here, right? And that feels like... That feels like it should be a bigger deal than they're presenting it as, right? Because I never imagined that the Shadow King would just join up with Professor X and just live on Krakoa, like, as a regular dude. And and I figure if he did, which of course he did, they'd probably write a story to explain it, not just have him pop up in the background of a splash page where he's like the eighth most interesting character. I I guess that might just be the nature of a crossover miniseries, though, right? I mean, if we go back to the last uh, crossover miniseries we had, X-Men plus Fantastic Four, we saw a handful of cameos there that didn't quite sit right, right? Though at least with that one, it sort of has the excuse of coming out from a different editorial office. Not sure what the excuse is here, or if, uh, you know, maybe I just hold the Shadow King in a sort of rarefied air that Marvel does not. But it just seems like this should have been explained. He shouldn't just be in a panel. Overall, um, if I'm being honest, I think we're headed in the right direction. 
though that is definitely damning with faint praise because uh, I did not like that first issue and I didn't think it could get any worse. So, uh, and also with the first issue, I think I was just overwhelmed feeling disgusted and exploited as an X-Men completionist. And here today, I just feel kind of bored. So, I mean, it's baby steps, but it's in the right direction. And oh, by the way, all four issues of this Empire colon X-Men series will be $5 each. Which I'm going to try not to dwell on, because uh, I know I can do that sometimes, and uh, we, we all know it's a ripoff. We all know that they should not be charging $5 for this stuff. Um, I think that's all we really need to say about it. I, I, I'm going to try not to make too many mentions of it in the next two episodes, but uh, you know, just so we're all on the same page, I think it's a ripoff, and I'm pretty sure uh, I'm not alone in thinking that. Now, overall, if you're an X-Men completionist, well, you, you already own this. If you're not, you can safely skip it, because you're not missing anything important. Though, if that does wind up changing over the course of the next two episodes, I will admit my mistake. So you have that. I hope in two episodes' time you'll hear me saying, Hey, I'm sorry, this is the greatest thing in the world. Everybody go out and get it. I just don't see that happening. But uh, if it does, I will definitely cop to my mistake. So that's all I got to say about Empire, colon, X-Men number two. Let's hop into the mailbag here, and we're going to talk to Damien first, who's talking about Giant Size X-Men Magneto number one. Now, Damien says, I've had a bit of a catch-up day, so you're going to be inundated with comments. I'm really mixed on this story. It's a fun little tale, but so much of it depends on knowledge of the history of these characters. You need to know that they have a long history together from Supervillain Team-Up onwards. I know they're marketing Giant Size as an art-led book, but I wonder if they therefore think of it as a fan book, which will only be bought by people who know their ex-history. I think a new reader would be lost. There's no explanation of who Magneto and Namor are, and no direct reference to their shared history. That's a great point. That's a great point. It doesn't even make allusions to the recent Namor and and Magneto history, where they were, you know, both X-Men. You know, they were both on the team. They were both on the same team living on Utopia or whatever. We don't really get that there. All we get is like, okay, Namor's kind of a kind of a douche, and Magneto's doing Emma Frost a solid for whatever reason. Uh, Damien continues, I like the way that Magneto reacted to the witch's challenge. It's evocative of the way the X-Men are taking the unexpected route. That's a very good call-out. That's a very good point. I didn't really put that together. I didn't really read into it much more than... Just seeing it as like the old dungeon master trap, you know, like the uh, like one of those riddles where like the person next to me is lying, the person on the other side of me is telling the truth, and you can ask one question, and it just felt very very tropey to me. I did I didn't really think much more than that. Uh, Damien continues. As for the art, I'm actually a bigger fan of Ramon Perez than Ben Oliver, so I was glad of the artist change. In particular, I was really impressed with David Curiel's colors. I thought he really increased the mood. And yes, the colors here were very, very good. They were very, very good. I feel like maybe I don't give as, give enough credit to um, to the rest of the art team outside of the pencils or the uh, you know the just overall pencil inker artist. Uh, I don't really talk much about the colors, and uh, I probably should. Now, I honestly can't say if I like Perez or Oliver better. I'm not overly familiar with either one of them. Uh, I can say, though, that I didn't feel as though Perez warranted a showcase like this. 
You know, if this is the art-led book, this is the hey, hey, look at our artists. I mean, it was good, but it wasn't anything show-stopping like Dodderman or Davis on the prior two giant size offerings. When I hear that a book is going to be posed or poised as the one that you need to see because the art is going to just knock your socks off, this wasn't it. And I mean, maybe we're spoiled because we get Rod Reese every once in a while on New Mutants, but this was not, uh, this didn't stand out as being anything other than just good comic art, where Dodderman and Davis were just like, oh wow, you need to see this, you know? Just me though, who knows? Uh, Damien continues. I walk away from this issue wondering what Emma Frost is up to. The sentinel head seems like an ominous element to use in your architecture. Her original Hellions were slaughtered by the sentinels back in the 90s, and she ended up in a coma, so I can't imagine it as a place for her. Sebastian Shaw was behind the sentinels for quite some time. Do you think she's building a prison for him? She definitely wants to take revenge on him, but she can't kill him as he'd be resurrected. So a prison would fit her plans. And yeah, the question as to what to do with the island is definitely the main takeaway here. And everything you said is, uh, I mean, that's a great idea, isn't it? I mean, just as a, even if Shaw's not involved, just a prison island, you know? Um, Because, yeah, like you said, I couldn't see Emma wanting to reside somewhere that's adorned with a sentinel head. I don't know. Um... Because what I saw when when I saw it at first, I, I was just reminded of the Children of the Vault storyline that we saw in, boy, what was it, X Men Five, Volume Five, Number Five, where X twenty three Sink and Darwin went into the uh, into the into the vault. I remember seeing a Sentinel head as part of that architecture, and that's what I thought of right away. But I'm not sure one way or another which way this uh, might go, or further if it goes. Um, I mean, I do wonder if it'll come back around. Like, will we see it in the pages of Marauders, or will we never see it at all, ever again? I mean, we just never know with these sort of things. Um, this could be a seed they wind up and you know forgetting they ever planted. Hopefully we see it again. I just, uh, I wouldn't hazard a guess as to when that might be. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on Giant Size Magneto. Uh, another $5 book. We're getting a lot of those, aren't we? Aren't we? Hmm. Uh, next, Jesse DeJong gives us his Hox Pox Docs update. Now he says, Hey Chris, thanks for the call out and the feedback on my Generation X continuity list that I've been assembling. Now if you do decide to do a watch along of the Generation X movie, you should specify since there are two versions. I still have the one that aired on Fox on VHS with the Mardi Gras buffers for the commercials. I never understood why they never bought, uh, brought buff or refrax into the continuity. It's because Buff and Refrax were, uh, they were characters from the Generation X TV movie, and they, as far as I know, they never made their way into the Marvel Universe. And uh, I remember back in the long ago, I was surprised that they didn't get added in some sort of way. I mean, even as just like a pair of one-offs, even if, even if they were just a pair of villains or something, just to say they were there, you know? Um, I didn't know there were two versions of the movie either. Um, and I mean... To be completely honest, you all know by now that uh, the alternate media versions of comics properties are way outside my wheelhouse. If it's not, you know, saddle stapled and folded, I really don't know much about it. So I didn't know that. So thank you for that information. Uh, Jesse continues. We have both hit about the same spot in our reading of the Hox Pox Socks list. 
I'm so far behind due to wanting to read all of Empire since it's been years since I've read a whole crossover event. Originally, before the pandemic, the list of books was almost twice as large. There's a Thor story that keeps getting mentioned but didn't see print, although maybe they have it digitally. But I'm old school and I love to hold the books in my hands and take up way too much space in my basement. Anyway, it took me two months to get through all the issues in the event, and I can sum it up by saying this could have been a three-issue story in Future Foundation or Black Panther and the Agents of Wakanda. As soon as I finished Empire, King and Black dropped. I think I'll wait on that. And I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember the last event I went all in with. Um, I know for DC, I was probably Convergence, which, uh, well, which which really sucked. Um, not, not a good event. It was it was a um, poorly disguised attempt to basically give DC a couple of months so they could move from New York to California, and they filled it with absolute throwaway trash, for the most part. Some of it was really good, but for the most part it was just like, hey, remember Batman and the Outsiders? Well, here they are, and it's never going to matter again. So there you go. But for Marvel... You know, it might have been the very same year. Uh, Or, yeah, because Convergence was 2015, so it might have been the very same year with the 2015 Secret Wars, at least for the first few months, uh, until everything kind of went off the rails. And and that's for me. You know, for me it went off the rails, because I know a lot of folks who absolutely adore that event. I unfortunately do not. Uh, And I know there were a lot of delays, and a lot of stuff just got hiccuped. And... uh, I, I, I do want to say that I did go into it with the best of intentions. I bought the uh, the DCBS Secret Wars bundles for the first few months. It would be like, hey, here's everything from Secret Wars, and every month it was like it was like hundred and sixty dollars, and that was at like forty percent off. So I probably spent like five hundred bucks on Secret Wars, and I didn't even follow the uh, you know the side stories through the whole way. I, I have the I have the whole main series and all the X-Men stuff, but I dropped everything else because it was just way, way too much. I mean, that would be way too much on something that I actually enjoyed, much less something that I really didn't. Um, but talking about Empire here, I could definitely believe that an event that's predicated on alien invasion, but this time it's plants, could have very easily been wrapped up in a very short arc in a single book. Um, and you mentioned... You know, King and Black, right? It's nuts how Marvel... They're not even pretending to give us a break from the mass crossovers anymore. Like, it used to be that we'd get at least a couple months between them, right? It felt like, okay, well, here's... You know, we're going we're gonna to wrap this thing up because every Marvel event, at least up until I stopped, you know, compulsively buying them, they were just stricken with delays. So it would just take forever to... Like, a nine-issue story would take... 14 months to come out because it's just they just kept getting delayed and now it's like i don't know if there are delays or not but it doesn't even matter because they're just they're just putting them out on top of one another this is like a what is that thing where like if you get two life sentences in jail you can serve them both at the same time (laughs) that's what it feels like with the marvel events it's just, we don't even get a breathing, any breathing room at all. It's just one into the other, into the other, into the other, usually with overlap, which is ridiculous. Back to Jesse. 
He says, as I've said before in a different message, the X-Men part of Empire event was as profound and entertaining as Fallen Angels was. But they did get me and you and others to buy it, so mission accomplished. You also got one of two wishes. Yes, this is a space thing, but no, it's not hero versus hero after the first issue. So, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I almost wrapped up last episode by saying, Fallen Angels, you're off the hook. (laughs) Because I can't believe that I'm actually looking back at Fallen Angels as being almost favorable by comparison. You know, I talk about nebulous things like heart. Fallen Angels didn't have none of that. This has even less. Um, But Fallen Angels, oh boy, it's like... Yeah, I would trade to read a Fallen Angels issue instead of another Empire issue. And it's true. I mean, this... I, I mentioned it before. This is a grift. This only exists to exploit completionists. And I can't say that it isn't successful to that end. You know, Marvel and, of course, Disney probably have some very good bean counters employed, and they know exactly what they're doing. So we're... People like me are... Uh, we're part of the problem. You know. Uh, Jesse continues... You've mentioned keeping a tally of mutants who have died since Hoxpox started, and you can add one more to the list. In Immortal She-Hulk number one, Wolverine flat-out kills a mutant named Tantrum and explains to She-Hulk that the guy will be okay because they have, quote, healers on Krakoa. Now, is Wolverine just up and killing people because it's the easiest way to deal with them? Is this his way of showing that mutants are not considered man or human so he can go against the new Krakoan law? I know X-Force is one thing, but the guy got stabbed from behind without even a punch or warning from old Logan. Wow. That I did not know. And that is so dumb. Just killing a mutant to prove that he could. Who, who the hell's writing that book? That's ridiculous. I gotta wonder if our head of X knew that this was going to go down, because that's just wildly irresponsible. It seems to go against so much of what they're building in the X-Men, but that who the hell is writing that? Jesus. Uh, now, that said, I am only reading the X-Books, so if anybody listening can help me, you know, keep me apprised of mutant happenings and mutant deaths going on outside in the other books, please do let me know. Also... If there are, like, mutant Krakoa-centric stories happening outside of our little editorial fiefdom that you feel like I should devote an entire episode to, definitely, please let me know. I know Fantastic Four number 26 has been brought up. The, uh, you know, the big Franklin retcon. Don't know if I should devote an entire episode to it. If uh, if you all want me to, I will. So just let me know, and uh, we can we can definitely start peppering in, you know, uh, other happenings. That we might consider vital to the, you know, the X-lapsed lore, you know, the the way we're weaving our way through this. So definitely let me know of that. Uh, Back to Jesse. I would be slightly more interested in how many Hox Pox books do not have someone getting drunk in it. Wolverine getting Magneto plastered to get his helmet. Cyclops getting pass out drunk while meeting Phantom X. Kitty and Boom Boom always with a bottle in hand. Gene and Logan in a hot tub sharing a bottle of beer. And on and on and on. Did it all of a sudden become super cool to get stupid drunk, or is Marvel just being irresponsible? They put out a, a decree about smoking in their books, but I guess people being constantly sloshed is okay for T+. And you know, it's funny. I, anytime I mention the drinking, I think I, I feel like I'm being a little too severe on it, right? But to me, 
it just stinks of those kids in high school who would draw like a marijuana leaf on the cover of their Trapper Keeper to show how edgy they were, right? It's low-hanging fruit, and it really doesn't impress me quite as much as I think it's supposed to. I think I'm supposed to be like, wow, this is cool, this is edgy, and it's like, no, it's stupid. Maybe if I were still a teenager, I'd be thinking this is like super cool and totally edgy. But as a 40-year-old man... I mean, first of all, I'm too old for this crap, but second of all, it just feels way too try-hard and pandering. It's it's writing for an audience that doesn't really exist, you know? You're, it's, it's just a different time right now. Don't know what else to say about it, but I do always worry that I'm being a little too harsh on it, but it's, it's pandering. Back to Jesse. Maybe I'm just complaining about Wolverine too much today, but I just finished X-Force number 10, and I can't tell you how much I hate the last page of that book. I don't feel so bad that I dumped a soda on the issue either. I do not like Gene and Logan being a thing with a big question mark over Scott. It may just be my upbringing, but I think past a point you need to commit to one person and not just have open relationships. I suppose I'm just old-fashioned, but if Gene is done with Scott, then let's come out and say it. Maybe she is, since Scott was into Emma for so long. I would like a clear understanding of who was with whom in the Scott-Gene-Logan-Emma relationship, and not just hints about rooms with the moon on the moon that connect. And yeah, I've, I've said it before, this open relationship, I mean, we know it's there, right? I mean, we saw we all saw the schematic for the Summer House on X-Men number one. You, you just alluded to it there. And for folks who who somehow chose this episode to begin listening to this show and didn't listen to the older episodes, Jean's bedroom in the schematic can be accessed from both Scott and Logan's room. But that's all we really knew. And I, I didn't like it, but I was okay with it. Here, though, having it confirmed that this is an actual thruple, or quadruple, if we're going to include Emma, or whatever it actually is, I don't care for this. Um, This feels like yet another attempt at edginess for me. Uh, Either edginess or just a device to to evoke a reaction out of us seasoned readers, right? Just really don't know what the point of it is. I gotta hope that it's headed somewhere and won't just keep, you know, dribbling on. I I couldn't say one way or another where it's going. Uh, I would like for there to be clarification. I- I'm with you there. If if Jean is going to be with uh, Wolverine, then just have her be with Wolverine. If she's going to be with Scott, have her be with Scott. Uh, it's funny even talking about it because when this era ends and the next era begins, it'll all just change anyway. You know, we can have her and Wolverine get married in uh, in X Men Volume Five, Number Twenty Five, and then when the Dawn of X era ends. Uh, She'll be back with Scott, because the next writer will want him back with Scott. You know, it's... Who knows? Who knows? But for now, yeah, not liking it. Jesse continues. Well, ahead of time, I hope you get more out of Empire X-Men than I did, and I hope that this does not scare you away. There really isn't much X-Men involvement, except for the mini in this event. Wolverine joins the Fantastic Four with Spider-Man, and Cannonball and Sunspot show up at the very end for a wedding, is about all there is. And uh, yes, yeah, so far, we're on the same page regarding Empire, my friend. I didn't think there'd be much, if any, X-Men involvement in the main story. And uh, I did take a look at some of the house ads as I was making my way through to get here. And from the house ads that I've seen, 
I want to say the only X presence that I noticed was Wolverine, maybe Deadpool, you know, and I don't even know if we consider Deadpool one of ours anymore. And I mean, that's not surprising in the slightest, because how do you cross the streams with the mainstream Marvel Universe and Dawn of X era X-Men and make them work together? It's just, they're going to be fighting each other, and it's going to be, it just wouldn't make for an interesting or uh, engaging story, you know. Now, Jesse continues. I didn't expect this email to be so negative, but apparently I'm a white picket fences guy with a freshly kept lawn and not a sleep around drunk with bottles and bodies all around. I think my wife prefers it this way. To which, yes, we're all a little bit Jeff Bannister, aren't we? <laughs> he says, uh, he wraps up with, thanks, Chris, and until next time, keep it going. And we absolutely will. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time for such a uh, thoughtful email. Uh, it was really, really great getting that and uh, being able to share it with the folks. So thank you so, so much. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a message from Joe Crawford, who just finished the Dawn of X Anthology, Volume 6. Now, he says, I finished Dawn of X, Book 6, and his rankings are as follows. X-Men, New Mutants, Marauders, X-Force, Excalibur, and Fallen Angels. He says, Fallen Angels ends. This was my favorite Excalibur so far. Call Me Kate gets Marauder's Doctor spot. Uh, New Mutants pulls a Zatanna. X-Force goes Floronic. And Don't Screw With Destiny. Mostly good, this one. And yes, X-Men number six was fantastic. Uh, for folks who might not remember, this is, the, uh, this is the focus on Mystique, where we find out that uh, she knows a little bit. She, uh, she has a little bit of information from Destiny about... Uh, about Krakoa even being a thing in the first place. And, of course, she wants Destiny to come back. And Destiny says, if you can't bring me back, then just burn this place down. So, really, really awesome issue of X-Men. And I believe that was my number one out of the sixes as well. Just a fantastic issue. Um, we, I talked with Joe a little bit on the uh, socials today. And uh, uh, Call Me Kate is uh, starting to get on his nerves like it got on my nerves. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess that really, really got under his skin for this one because it pushed it, it pushed the book, the entire book, down a peg for him. Now, X Force number six was another really good one for me. I believe this is the one with uh, well, Joe says it right there. They go Floronic. This is with the Telefloronics in uh, Terra Verde. Was it Terra Verde? Maybe where Beast does the thing. You know, I I, I love that idea of a. You know, floronic post-human sort of a situation I, I thought that opened up a lot of opportunities For, for very interesting storytelling Fallen Angels, hey Hey, at least it's over, right? Um, I think in Fallen Angels number 6 That's where Quanon sprouted butterfly wings And uh, probably learned the same thing about a path For the 87th time So, yeah, it's a good thing that's over and I did talk to Joe a little bit about uh, what's to come, and apparently I was very excited for him to check out X-Men number 7, you know, the Crucible issue, the, you know, the, the real big one. And uh, I guess that one's not included in the Dawn of X Anthology book 7, but it's in Dawn of X Anthology book 8. And I do recall we did go for a little while without getting an issue of X-Men, so I wonder if that's what it had to do with. Maybe they were trying to get some other stories in there before, before hitting the Crucible. I have to assume that they know what they're doing Because otherwise, I mean, who knows 
But uh, Joe might actually skip around and get to X-Men number 7. He'll, he might pull it up on the app to give it a look. So I'm definitely looking forward to getting his thoughts on The Crucible because, yeah, that's a... Uh, you know, if, if there was ever a shoe drop issue of the Dawn of X era, that's the one. And uh, if anybody listening has not read X-Men number 7, please do so and let me know what you thought about it. And uh, maybe even listen to the episode where I have a... Wildly interesting conversation with myself about it So, uh, that's X-Men number 7 But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, Joe You're just burning through these books You're going to be caught up with us pretty damn quick And that's awesome That's really awesome But thanks so much for sharing And if uh, anyone out there listening would like to share Please do so You could reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter Or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Also, xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk to us about whatever you want over at 90s X-Men on Facebook. I tried posting an episode there today, and uh, Facebook gave me an error. I tried for about an hour, in and out, and uh, kept getting errors. So you might might not see anything there for a day or two, but uh, (laughs) it's not my fault, I promise. Um, but that is 90s X-Men on Facebook And you can check out all the rest of the audio At chrisandreggie.podbean.com It's the full Chris and Reggie channel archives uh, There's thousands of hours of audio That uh, a couple hundred thousand of ears have listened to So plenty of stuff there Hopefully something that interests you So I think that's where we'll put a pin in it for today uh, We are halfway through Empire So that's a good thing Which means we're only three episodes away from introducing the last Wave 2 book from Dawn of X That's going to be X-Factor And I'm really, really looking forward to checking that one out I've heard plenty of good things about it And I hear that there's a uh, a little werewolf puppy in it So I'm, I'm really interested in getting to that one So that's where we'll leave for today One last big thank you to everyone For sharing your time with me today Even though these past couple of episodes have been a little bit more negative than I like to be. I do appreciate you sticking around with me and uh, tolerating it. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 84 of X-Lapse, where, well, the grift rolls on here. We're going to continue our way through the second half of Empire colon X-Men, and this is Empire colon X-Men number three. It's had an October 2020 cover date. The story's called Staff Infection. And once again, we get a whole new slew of writers. This is Vita Ayala, or Vita Ayala, I'm not sure which, uh, Zeb Wells and Ed Brisson. Art, Andrea Bricardo. Colors, Nolan Wooded. Letters, VCs, Clayton Cowles. Designs, Tom Muller. The head of X is Hickman. Edits, Beast, Sowite, Sobolski. Cover price, five friggin' dollars. And this went on sale August 12th of 2020. Now we kick things off with our roll call. Today we're going to be focusing on Magic, Penance, Angel, Multiple Man, Black Tom Cassidy, The Stepford Cuckoos, Beast, Nightcrawler, Opal, Edith, Augusta, Lily, and Explody Boy. Then we get two pages of people taking credit for this. Okay, so into comics, and we're, of course, still on Genosha, and our zombies are still stirring. Now, they won't shut up about brains. Real original, right? Uh, now, it's not 100% clear to me here, but I think we've even got some veg-type zombies in the mix now. Whatever the case, they're all headed to that big bulb, you know, that big membrane that uh, even the Soul Sword couldn't cut through last issue. Uh, it looks as though the veg-types are actually being granted access through, though, I think. Anyway, back to our heroes. Now, the mutant psychics, who now include Danny Moonstar, Karma, and some blonde character, who I think is supposed to be Maxime or Manon, but, I mean, really, they just look like Kamandi here? I don't know. They're watching a fleet of Jamie Madroxes fighting off the meat-type zombie horde. Now, Magic, she warps she and Opal away, and we'll catch up with them in just a little bit. Quentin Quire then takes point, telling the mutant psychics it's time to mount up to which they somehow wrap themselves in a tree-like armor coating and leap into action. And this is the first of a few unwarranted and fillery full-page spreads. I mean, as if this story didn't already feel stretched out to the point where it would need, like, collagen injections before, right? Anyway, Magic and Opal. They zip over to Beast Lab on Krakoa, and this is a decent little scene. Now, they're here in hopes that they can concoct some of that black oak in order to destroy the bulb. And I'm going to come clean here. I thought that's what they did last issue, but I suppose I was mistaken. I guess it was just Teeny Tiny Tom's attempt to communicate with Krakoa that caused the bulb to get all wonky and spit Jamie Madrox out. Fair enough. My bad. So I do want to give this issue some credit here, because I said I like this scene, because this might actually be the best portrayal of Beast that we've seen since Hoxpox, and even before that. He's not brooding, he's not snarky, he's not borderline evil, he's not philosophizing with semester one freshman ethics sort of stuff. He's doing beast things, just doing beast things, and it's pretty funny. Uh, we jump back to Genosha, where Madrox has somehow managed to rescue Monet, while uh, down below in the fracas, the zombies are overwhelming a gaggle of Jamie dupes. Jamie Prime, and I think it's Horticulture Lily, they're then approached by Explody Boy, who makes them an offer that... Well, they don't even really get the opportunity to think long enough about in order to refuse. Now, E.B. says he'll help out so long as he can keep all the resulting meat to eat. Jamie's just kind of dumbfounded, and then E.B. goes kaboom. Back to Krakoa, Beast and Opal are listening to some classical music and working on their Black Oak gimmick, and it doesn't take them all that long to get to, get to the bottom of it. And I'm telling you, this is some of the best Beast we've seen in years, 
It's sad that it's like just a short side visit here, as this is the last we'll see of them. Anyway, they have their Black Oak Serum, and they load up a bunch of Super Soakers with it. They then give them to Black Tom, who, as always, is Black Tomming. He claims that his teeny tiny Tom avatar has been busted, and so he's out of tricks. Thankfully, we do have another teleporter here, and his name is Nightcrawler. Kurt grabs the Super Soakers and bamfs all the way to Genosha in another unwarranted full-page spread. So, okay, we're back on Genosha, and it's the zombie vs. mutant battle. It continues to rage on. Uh, one of the cuckoos is very nearly overwhelmed by, like, a whole bunch of undeads. But Magic is able to step in before anything actually happens. And, you know, it's like, yeah, they're really going to actually kill somebody in this pointless cash-in? I never see any editorial footnotes directing us to read this. Um, I mean, Empire X-Men isn't even worth resorting to the Resurrection Protocols. Uh, Magic actually says that using the Protocols is expensive. So, uh... I think uh, they must blow their monthly budget every time an issue of X-Force drops, because uh, bodies hit the floor in that book. Anywho, the cuckoo suggests, hey, how about we stop fighting wave after wave after wave of these things and maybe try to find out where they're coming from? Magic is all, duh, why didn't I think of that? To which, yeah, why didn't you think of that? You're the Krakoan war captain. Shouldn't you have had that in in the back of your head somewhere? Whatever the case. Back to Nightcrawler, who's squirting the big bulb with his super soakers, and it actually begins to work. It's wearing holes in the formerly unbreakable membrane. Unfortunately, the meat-type zombies are using these holes to enter because they uh, appear to sense fresh meat inside. Back to Magic and the Cuckoo, they're porting around looking for the zombie origin point, and after a dozen or so ports, they happen across a very odd rod, of which Magic is overwhelmed with his beauty. It gives the cuckoo a nosebleed, but not in the anime way. Now, Magic grabs the staff and... winds up transformed into some sort of demon? Uh, okay. Uh, The cuckoo sends out a psychic SOS to inform the rest that, uh, well, they got problems. Back to Madrox. He, Monet, Lily, and Sophia Petrillo, or is that Phil Rizzuto? I don't know. They regain their bearings following Explodey Boy's explosion. And as the dust settles, Jamie sees a bunch of meat-type zombies chowing down on... himself. Like his dupes. This scene is being played for laughs, and... I think it sucks. I don't care for it one bit. I mean, I come from a time where if Jamie lost a single dupe, it affected him deeply. And here, dozens are just being eaten by zombies, and I think we're supposed to find it funny. Come on, folks, you're better than this. This is... this is some low-hanging crap here. This is garbage. Now, what's more, in order to clear a path for their escape, Jamie starts just chucking random dupe body parts to distract the zombies. This isn't cool. I mean, is this the sort of garbage that they put in those Marvel Zombies books? Because get that crap out of here. Keep it over in those low-effort books and maybe try a little harder here. Now, let's work our way toward the ending here. Angel. Remember him? Okay, well, he starts to come out of his hormonal days and uh, realizes that the women that he was just fawning over are... Well, ancient. Magic as a demon has some very, very Hickman-esque dialogue, talking about chaos godheads and whatnot. Uh, she then proclaims herself to be the zombie queen of New Genosha. Then, Warren and Jamie start power puking. Not just because they're in this horrible story, but as a side effect of the pheromone wearing off. They all then head inside the big bulb. Here, they find a bunch of meat and veg-type zombies dining on a giant brain. We learn that this is a kotati knot, comprised of, I don't know, a bunch of kotati stuff. 
One Katati head tells our heroes that the broadleaf lord is infected, whatever the hell that means. Just then, the brain bursts, and from it emerges a giant plant zombie big-brained thing that says glor, glor, glor. And we're out of here. Um, next episode, we wrap this up. Uh, unfortunately, over the course of the next little while, we will be revisiting Empire at least twice in the pages of X-Men Volume 5, but we'll worry about that when we get there. Let's talk about this. And let's start with the good. Let's start with the good, because there was good here. I thought this was a great portrayal of Beast. <laughs> Unfortunately, that only filled two pages of this issue. Uh, the rest of the issue? Well, it, it sure happened to us, didn't it? Um, you know, it might be damning with faint praise to say that this could have been good. But it could have. It could have been a decent story. If, back in issue one, the mutant zombies managed to make their way through the gateway to Krakoa, I feel like that could have been a lot more fun. Relatively speaking, anyway. I think that would have made it feel like far less of a cash-in, nothing-happening-completionist-exploiting miniseries. Again, relatively speaking, of course. And who knows? Maybe that was the original plan and the COVID hiatus caused them to shift gears? Probably not. Um, I'm looking at the cover of this issue, right? And of course, covers are fairly meaningless, considering that even the most random of issues comes with a dozen or so variants. Um, I'm looking at it here, and it looks like whoever drew it didn't actually know much about what was going to actually be going on in it. Um, We had a similar issue during X-Men Plus Fantastic Four... Not that that's an excuse. I mean, I don't need to remind any of you that we've got a whole fleet of editors who are supposed to be editing and helping to guide these things, right? But if we stop and we look at the cover, the most prominent character on it is Cyclops. How do you like them Cyclops scenes? What's more, he's flanked by Colossus, Polaris, and Magneto. Those characters have pretty good scenes in here, right? No, we didn't see any of them. What we also didn't see was the Shadow King, who I made perhaps too big a deal out of last episode. Maybe they realized that he, you know, just shouldn't be jammed in the background of a cluttered panel? Who knows? Um, While I'm griping, let's go to my biggest gripe. And no, I'm not talking about the low-effort zombie brain stuff. But I'm really annoyed at seeing Jamie Madrox's dupes being eaten by those low-effort zombies. And the whole scene being treated as a funny ha-ha. I remember stories and scenes in the old, you know, the first run of Peter David X-Factor back in the long ago where when Jamie was unable to reabsorb a dead or a dying dupe, that just got into his head to, so, to the point where he was like a basket case. Which, I mean, stands to reason, doesn't it? Here, though, it's just like, well, that sucks, zombies are eating me. It, it's really, really so dumb. And I'd like to think that our Hox, Pox, Doc, Socks brain trust are a little bit better than this. So please, prove me right, because this ain't good. Uh, But I'll tell you what, the beast scene was pretty damn good. Give me more of that beast, please. Whoever was responsible for writing those two pages, I want you, you you know, ferrying beast back to uh, prominence and decency. Um, Decompression, let's talk about that. The uh, seams of decompression are really showing here. Uh, Panels were sparse, as in there weren't very many per page. And then we'd get these unnecessary full-page spreads that really were not warranted. You probably don't need me to tell you that uh, it feels like they padded this out just a little bit to get the four issues. It's just unfortunate that they only had enough story for, like, a regular-sized one-shot that they'd still charge $5 for. Um, I don't think I could recommend this any less 
Though, though, I am still open to the possibility that I am completely wrong, and that our fourth issue will make me see the error of my ways. Oh, the things we tell ourselves, right? But, uh... That is all I have to say about Empire colon X-Men number three. Let's hop into the mailbag here. We're going to start with Damien. He's talking about New Mutants number 11. He says, I feel like the three-part Carnelia story would have worked better as a two-parter, followed by a so-called Lobdell quiet issue. It seems odd pacing choice to drag an extra cliffhanger out of the story when it could be so quickly resolved. And yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, This felt totally tacked on. Um, There was really no reason as to why this needed to be padded, just so the main conflict could be wrapped up in the opening three pages of issue 11 here. Um, And I agree. A Lobdell Quiet issue would have worked really well here. I I feel like it would give the kids an opportunity to decompress a little bit, because whether the arcs have been exciting or not, we can't deny the fact that there have been arcs here. You know, we had the space arc, we had the farm arc, we had the Nova Roma bit, now we have the Carnelia bit. That's a lot of stuff going down. And it would be nice to let the kids decompress while still dealing with all the fallout. You know, I mentioned not wanting to see Armor cope with, you know, seeing her family in the ink balloon, but that would have fit in a quiet issue, just a breather issue, just giving us a little chance to catch our breaths before we move into the next phase of things. Damien continues. Having said that, I love this issue because most of the focus was on quiet character moments. Obviously, I still hate how Boom Boom is portrayed, but all the other characters felt right. Danny's moral certainty is a large part of the narrative backdrop to the Claremont run on New Mutants, and I hope her being against mind manipulation leads to her rebelling against Xavier. And I hope so, too. I really hope we start seeing little bits of doubt being sprinkled throughout the books. I mean, we've seen a little bit of it, but I'd like to see that sort of bubble to the forefront a little bit. And I mean, you guys know me, as much as I hate the contrived hero-versus-hero story, and I feel like they are beyond played out at this point, I feel like if they're done right, this could actually be one worth reading. I mean, at this point, it kind of writes itself, doesn't it? I mean, we've been doing our uh, our own headcanon here since, I mean, since the start, uh, and definitely since The Crucible. So it's, uh, I feel like this one would write itself. I feel like maybe they're going to be saving that for the third and final act of Hox, Pox, Docs, Socks, Tox. Is the post-X of Ten's era being called Twilight of X? I, I could have sworn I read that somewhere. Maybe Marvel previews, or maybe it's Dusk of X. I don't know. I, I know it's something of X, but I couldn't tell you exactly what. Uh, Damien continues. I continue to like the idea of Glob Herman as the homemaker of the Sexton. He's one of those characters who I've really warmed to over the years, but he isn't very good as a superhero, so it's nice to see a role that keeps him in the book. And that's true. Uh, I mean, there really isn't a whole lot that a walking sack of whatever Glob's comprised of, uh, you know, on the battlefield, right? I want to say that he served a similar role to this in what little uh, I read of Age of X-Men. I know he very, at the very least had a chicken coop there, so I think he... Uh, I, I don't remember much of his backstory. Is he, you know, a farm boy? Maybe. But uh, I know he had uh, a chicken coop there. He's got a chicken coop here. So I think that's pretty neat as well. Damien wraps up with, You seem really keen on seeing a resolution to the Docs plot. And Docs is in the mutant-hating website magazine thing. I'm quite fearful about it, as I think it's a potential minefield. We've seen a tendency toward the lowest common denominator with villains, and I imagine some very unsubtle depiction of a reactionary internet troll. (sighs) 
you know what? I didn't even think of that. <laughs> you very well might be, and probably are right. Uh, this might be some wildly unsubtle stuff heading our way. Um, I really don't have a lot of faith in Marvel's portrayal of undesirables these days. I mean, they kind of wear their biases on their sleeve. So yes, this might wind up being a toughie. I suppose it's a good thing that it looks like it'll be a one-and-done, because right after that issue, we jump into Exitens. Um, we do have some time before we get to that episode, uh, because I actually just updated the next couple dozen um, episode art things, you know, like what I put up when what I put up as the album art for each episode. And uh, just to get us up to like episode 100, and the next issue of New Mutants, New Mutants 12, is going to actually be episode 99. So we have a little while before we find out just how subtle or unsubtle the Doc's plot might be. So thank you so much for writing in your thoughts on New Mutants number 11, Damien. Thank you. Thank you. Next, Andrew Franklin is talking about Empire and Hellions number 2. He says, I don't like modern Marvel comics. Hell, I don't like most modern comics. I don't care about the wider Marvel universe, so to me, Empire is an inconsequential thing that we'll have to grit our teeth and endure. I hope that the part of the crossover you're detailing becomes good, but after the first issue, I'm not holding my breath. I really hope that the other space crossover Marvel is doing about the symbiote space god, insert loud disdainful groan here, doesn't have any X-Book crossover. I am crossover-averse, so even X of Tens is something I'm not really looking forward to. If a part 4 of 6 reads poorly as a single issue, what's a part 13 of 22 gonna read like? I'm keeping an open mind about it, though, because I know a character, I know two characters I like show up, and some listeners here have said good things about it. Now, from what I can tell, our symbiote space god story, um, there will be some King in Black tie-ins to our X-Men books. So far, I have seen that the X-Men are actually on the cover of King in Black number 4, one of the probably 7 trillion covers, so might not mean anything. Uh, there are a couple of issues of the upcoming Sword series that are King and Black branded. And Marauders, I think it's a one-shot or a miniseries tied in with King and Black. Um, I can't say that I'm looking forward to any of that. <laughs> Especially in light of what we've gotten with this Empire cash-in, right? It's just another way to pull another, another uh, $5 bill out of our pockets, right? But uh, we'll see. We'll see when we get there. I mean, at this point, it's going to be a long time till we get there. So we'll worry about that as we get closer. And as for Exit 10s, can't lie. I'm also a bit nervous about how I'm going to receive it. Uh, not that I can't deal with some duller chapters of a mass crossover event. I mean, this ain't my first rodeo. But as you said, 22 parts is a lot to devote to a single story, isn't it? I mean, at this point, if we include all the Path 2s and the Prelude 2 X of 10s bunch, we're going to be talking about that story for like a month and a half on this show. That's a long time. And uh, <laughs> if I wind up not liking the story, that's going to be a very, very tough month worth of episodes uh, because I am too obsessed and or stupid to just pull the plug. So we'll, we'll power through <laughs> and probably do a grand disservice to a story that many, many people enjoy or seem to enjoy. But we'll worry about that when we get there. Andrew continues, I would be interested to know how many listeners read more Marvel titles than just the X-Men and if they're reading the whole Marvel Empire experience, how they're enjoying it. That's an excellent question. So if anyone out there would like to share their non-X Marvel pull list and, and you know, let us know, please, please do. 
because uh, I still do have questions. Like, if you're reading everything, uh, was this Empire X-Men miniseries worth it? Did it help add any flavor to the experience? Did it do anything for you? I'd like to know. And I guess as we get closer to, you know, uh, King in Black, we'll probably be asking some of those same questions then as well. Andrew continues, On a more positive note, I enjoyed Hellions number 2, maybe more than the first issue, if only because it was more than just getting the team together. I really like that Grey Crow kept his promise to Empath and killed him right away. Really tells the audience a lot about his character. I also like how Havoc reacted, telling Psylocke that he's probably not the right fit for a team where the members are just executing each other like it's no big deal. Which probably means before this arc is done, Alex will do something to show us he does belong here. I like the whole short conversation between Alex and Psylocke, where he tells her that he's fine, and she tells him that she's a psychic and knows that he's not. It feels like a very Alex thing to do, putting up a front like that, even as the reader sees a little glimpse that he's seeing an image of himself as the Goblin Prince and quietly freaking out. Alex has always wanted to be normal and fit in while constantly aware of the huge shadow his brother casts. As a fan of the character, I thought he was being handled well. More on that in a moment, though. And I agree. I agree. Havoc is being handled well here. Um, I still think I might have a problem with him being stuck on this team, simply because... And I talked about this during our Hellions number 1 discussion, but the Quiet Council really should have given him the benefit of the doubt, unless, of course, there is some sort of ulterior motive to having him on this team. You know, is he there to watch them? Is he a mole for Xavier? Is he in cahoots with the Quiet Council in some sort of way? I don't know. I really don't know. And uh, I think that is my main sticking point with Havoc being on the team, despite the fact that I'm a big fan of the character and I always like uh, seeing him try to deal with um, wanting to be, you know, mundane. Wanting to be mundane, but knowing that he's not. Uh, We've seen him leave the team time and again to try to live a normal life, sometimes with Polaris, sometimes not. So uh, it is cool seeing that dissonance continue to play out here. Andrew continues, The rest of the issue I enjoyed. I thought the info page on Sinister's Marauders was good. So far, Hellions is using that gimmick well. The art as a whole was good, and the zombie Marauders were appropriately creepy. The fight scene that takes up the last half of the issue is clear and easy to follow, and the coloring is good too, especially when Havoc uses his powers. It's nice bright blue-white. So while I, so kind of a short read, like most modern comics, I enjoyed this more than I thought I would. I'm curious to see where this story goes, with some trepidation. I too thought the uh, info page was pretty good here on the Marauders, simply because, I mean, if you're if you're just coming into this run, you don't know who any of these characters are. Uh, and I mean, it doesn't really tell you exactly who's who, but at least it gives you some sort of information, some sort of name that you could you know Google if you wanted to. I thought that was nice as a sort of secondary roll call page, so we knew exactly what the battlefield actually looked like. And, uh, I mean, the info pages I've been, you know, sometimes they've been rotten, sometimes they've been pretty decent, and sometimes they're really good. And this one was a good one, uh, simply because it delivered information, which, you know, go figure is what an info page probably should do. And it, you know, back in the day, I feel like it would have been... The Claremontian way to do it would have all of them stand there and introduce themselves, right? It's like, I'm Harpoon, and, you know, I'm Arclight. That seemed to be the old Claremont way of doing it, but it was a different time, so it was, uh, yeah, there's a little bit of a charm to that. But nowadays, I don't know that we can get away with that sort of thing. And so, hey, we got these info pages. We might as well use them for, uh, for the reason they should be used for, which is 
to deliver information. <laughs> now, Andrew continues. Now my gripes. I want to talk about the attempts at humor in this book. He says, now you talk a lot about Chris problems, and I'm going to say that this might just be an Andrew problem. The bit with Nanny stuck on the floor. I know it made you laugh, so I can't say it wasn't funny, and I'm sure most people really enjoyed it. But to me, the Andrew problem is that all I could think when I see this is, oh, you just put Nanny in the book to laugh at her. And I find that incredibly disrespectful and a waste of a character. Take that gag out, and what changes about the story? Nothing. I get that Nanny is goofy and kind of silly, but her strength as a character is that she's goofy and silly while killing people and stealing their children. Nanny should be played creepy as hell, not for cheap slapstick. It bugs the hell out of me when an author picks a character and decides they're dumb and just craps all over them for a laugh. And yes, this is 100% an Andrew problem, but it's something that colors my reading, whether I like it to or not. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And uh, like I said during the discussion, I, I kind of hate myself for finding Nanny so funny in this book. <laughs> it's not my kind of comedy, but for whatever reason, it just gets me every time. Like, even the first issue when Sinister reacted to Nanny, seeing Nanny just a, an egg with lipstick on it and just freaked out. I, I don't know why that caught me so off guard, but it did. And Nanny kind of like writhing around like R2-D2 got me. It got me, but despite the fact that she is a horrifying character, and uh, you're you're 100% right, which, I mean, I can relate to that in so many ways. I'm talking about my, my problem with Jamie Madrox being eaten by zombies here, because the writer decided that it's going to be funny, you know? I, I have problems with that, too, so it's uh, maybe a Chris and Andrew problem. I just, for some reason, I've got a weakness for, uh, for our nanny. <laughs> Is all. <laughs> Andrew continues. That feeling also includes includes Batrock the Leaper, who doesn't deserve to be a joke. There, I said it. And I'm with you. I'm with you there, too. The reason I have such a knee-jerk reaction to Batrock is because, just like what you said here, he's mostly used as a low-effort comedy act. It's like, it's like the worst, like, distilled Wizard Magazine article. It's like, they might as well have Batrock carry a sign over his head that says... Laugh at this character, damn it, with an arrow pointing down or something, because that's all he's used for. I feel like Batrock and maybe Modok can hang out together because Modok is just a creepy head. Isn't he funny? Ha ha ha. No, there's more to it than that. You know, it's. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Andrew continues. My other gripe isn't so much a gripe as a trepidation about where the story's going. I really don't want Alex to be portrayed as lovesick over Madeline. I don't want to read him trying to reach the good inside her only for her to redeem to deem herself too broken to be good and him agonizing over killing her to save his team. That's pretty much a stock havoc story and I really hope that's not exactly what happens. And you know, I haven't really given much thought to what might happen. I'm afraid you might be right on the money though cuz I don't see her making it out of this uh of this uh story alive. I don't know what the resurrection protocols might have in store for her since she's I guess she's technically a mutant, but she's also a clone. I don't know if... I don't know if we've had one of those die yet. <laughs> so, maybe they'll bring her back, maybe they won't. Maybe she'll just uh, stay dead. I, I have a feeling, though, that she is probably not going to make it out of this story because I think that this first arc is the statement arc, you know, where they kind of lay down what, what to expect from this volume and this series. So I think it's going to be... Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. 
Uh, Andrew wraps up with, That's all I've got to say, so I'll end by saying that I continue to enjoy the show. And don't feel too bad when you're negative on a book because you're far more positive, so it evens out. Until Krakoa and Paradise Island do the island mating ritual, make mine X-lapsed. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there, Andrew. And, uh, yeah, I'm trying to get over myself as it pertains to, uh, being negative on a book. Because as a fake-ass reviewer, um, there's, like, this weird line, right? There's this odd line that you feel like... I don't know, when you look at reviewers online, they seem to be very, very polar, right? They, they're either... A total sunshine, lollipops, rainbows, 10 out of 10. This is the greatest thing in the world. Please retweet me. Please share my post, Tom King and others. Uh, or they go the angry reviewer route and everything is, uh, you know, littered with F-bombs and uh, all sorts of curse words uh, for emphasis. And it's hard to find a middle ground. And it's also hard to, as someone who tries to keep the middle ground, when you veer into the polls, it's, uh, I don't know, you kind of feel like you're not being true, even if you are being true. I, I always worry about, you know, um, provocateering, I guess I, you should, I could say, uh, where I'm doing, I'm exaggerating just to get attention, and uh, I assure you I'm not. So <laughs> it troubles me when I have to be as negative as I've been on something like the Empire miniseries, or when I'm as positive on something like 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 these Hellions books, because it feels like I'm baiting. And uh, I don't know, that's definitely, that is definitely a Chris problem. So <laughs> we'll keep it close to vest and uh, see how we can do moving forward. But thanks again for uh, sharing your thoughts there, Andrew. We're going to wrap up with uh, Jesse DeJong regarding Empire. He says, good morning, Chris. And, and to answer your question, coming from someone who read every issue of the Empire series... No, Empire X-Men has zero effect on the rest of the crossover series. And if I recall, at no point does this series or any other crossover titles ever mention the events on Genosha. Bingo. That's pretty much exactly what I thought, unfortunately. And that's unfortunate, right? I mean, they dedicated... Well, they were supposed to dedicate several months to this before the, the COVID lapse, but uh, they, they, I mean, they devoted four issues to it. And... Uh, a bunch of writers and a bunch of artists. So it's very unfortunate, but it's it's not unexpected. I think we've all been around the block a bunch of times with the Marvel cash-in tie-in phenomenon. And this is just what we come to expect. And in a couple of months, <laughs> we'll be here again. So we'll, uh, we'll just keep going. <laughs> Jesse continues. I hope this doesn't spoil anything for you, but there will be something that takes place in issue four that might soften your look at Explody Boy. Well, at least there's one thing to look forward to. I just hope uh, maybe the resurrection protocols will still be too expensive to uh, <laughs> to use. Uh, Jesse continues. As for the other question, no, I don't think anyone reading the Empire title would feel the need to pick up the X-Men part of this event, whether it be Empire colon X-Men or just the X-Men title. If anything was a money grab, it would be this series. I honestly wish Marvel would put, a f put off for a few years any company-wide crossover so that when they do, it would be more impactful. I mean, could you even imagine ever going back to a time like that where, hey guys, no crossovers for two years. Could you imagine how great that would be? Just letting writers write and tell the stories they want to tell without having to worry about being derailed every month and a half after another you know, rolling crossover event. 
I remember DC made an announcement like that a few years ago. It was probably more than a few years ago, but time is flying, and uh, everything since I like turned 21 is just like a little while ago. Uh, I remember they made this announcement that they'd be, you know, paying more attention to their individual series instead of partaking in constant crossover mode, right? And they actually, they actually stuck to their word for like a minute or two. And uh, since you know, comic fans on the internet are very hypocritical, I remember fans mocking them for it. It seemed like like Marvel and DC can make the same announcement on the same day, and DC would be mocked for it, and Marvel would be lauded for it. Just seems to be the way things go. And I mean, I'm, I've got no use for either company at this point, but I notice that Marvel gets the free pass more often than not. Now, DC's just like Marvel. Multiple events running at the same time, just leading to another slew of events that will all run at the same time. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we're ever going back. It's really, really sad. Uh, but I'm sure before King and Black is over with, we're already going to know the next two Marvel crossover events. And one of them will probably have already been started. It's ridiculous. I mean, in not too long, we've actually got a uh, an X-Men issue that has the branding of both X of Swords and Empire on it. I mean, how ridiculous is that? <laughs> it's we are we are tying into two two crossover events. Ah. Jesse continues. I remember how excited I was for Civil War after years of company-wide crossovers not being a thing. Civil War may not have been a fantastic series, but I still remember it fondly. They still talk about it today, and there was even a movie made based on its premise. And you know, as much as I hated and continue to hate Civil War for making it so every single Marvel and now DC event needs to have a hero versus hero element, and also eschewing established characterization to make whichever character the writer wants to include fit into their contrived story, I'll admit that it was a novelty. I mean, it wasn't the first after the uh, after the hiatus of crossovers. The first one was House of M, and I feel like that was a primer for Marvel going back into crossover mode, like sort of a, a pilot. It's like, well, let's see how, let's see if this works. And then a year later, I mean, Civil War hit us like a ton of bricks. Uh, what kind of bricks? Well, I'll leave that to all of you. I know what kind of bricks they were to me. Uh, Jesse wraps up with, There's just not a need to do multiple crossovers in one year, except for the almighty dollar that I will still give them, so I guess I'm part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will fully cop to being part of the problem as well. Um, I've been part of the problem for most of my life, <laughs> which is pathetic, but it's true. Um, as much as I, uh, I, I have problems with, you know, the exploitation and the multiple crossovers and the, you know, gotta get them all, gotta read them all sort of, a mindset, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. I mean, we're, we're doing these Empire books. I didn't need to do these Empire books, but we're doing them <laughs> and, uh, we're paying the price. Definitely, definitely part of the problem. Uh, we talked... A lot about the four types of fans, right? And I know that I am definitely in group one, which is the person who buys everything. You know, the person who will buy comics if they are comics because they buy comics. So they know that and they use that and they exploit that. But 
I don't see it changing anytime soon, unfortunately. But uh, thank you so much for answering those questions uh, on Empire and, of course, for listening and sharing your thoughts. Uh, Now, if anyone out there would like to share their thoughts with me, I'm a pretty easy guy to get a hold of. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. We also have xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com, which utilizes the blogger flip card format, which makes it look really, really neat for uh, obsessive types like myself. Uh, you can come chat with us about X-Men, anything you want, at uh, 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you can hear the entire audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. guess that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Only one more... Well, one more miniseries issue of Empire to go. We still got a couple after that in the X-Men book, but we'll worry about those another time. I want to thank you all so, so much for hanging out today and sharing your time with me. And as always, till next time, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 85 of X-Lapsed, uh, the long-awaited 85th episode, because now we finally, finally get to put Empire colon X-Men behind us. So, uh, let's not waste any time. <laughs> let's get right into this thing so we can get it uh, checked off the list and uh, put in a long box never to be looked at ever, ever again. So yes, Empire, colon, X-Men number four, had an October 2020 cover date. The story is called Unring, and we're going to be talking about ringing and unringing and re-ringing and bell ringing, all sorts of ringing throughout this episode. This one was written by the head of X himself, Jonathan Hickman, with pencils by Jorge Molina and Lucas Warnick. Inks by Adriano de Benedetto and Lucas Warnick. Colors, Nolan Wooded and Rachel Rosenberg. Letters, VCs, Clayton, Cowles, Designs, Tom Muller, Edits, Bisa White-Sabolski, Cover Price, $4.99. Went on sale August 19th, 2020. That's quite a creative team here, right? Um, multiple pencilers, multiple inkers, multiple colorists. You'd almost think that this entire thing was an afterthought. I wouldn't say that, but uh, you might think it. 
Anyway, let's get into this here. Roll Call. Magic, Scarlet Witch, Angel, Multiple Man, Doctor Strange, Monet, Beast, Nightcrawler, Opal, Edith, Augusta, Lily, and Explody Boy, followed by a double-page spread of creds. Now we open by picking up from a scene that took place way back in Empire, colon, X-Men number one, which feels like it was absolute ages ago. This is where uh, the Scarlet Witch had just finished ringing a bigger bell. Uh, they're going to be talking about bells being rung and unrung a lot, as mentioned, so let's get used to it. Now, if you remember, she was on Genosha and is responsible for this whole 16 million mutant zombies thing. So now, in this scene, we get a good look at what, you know, the thing that freaked her out so bad back in issue one. And we left her where she was just like, oh no, not you. And, uh, duh, it's a herd of zombies. She struggles for a bit before bugging the F out. Now, she would eventually wind up back at the Sanctum Sanctorum, so Doctor Strange can spend several pages calling her an idiot. She explains what she'd done and how much research she'd put into doing it, but he still thinks that she's a damned fool. And he's not wrong, though uh, he might be a, a hair more annoying than even she is at this moment. She, Doctor Strange is kind of irritating here. Anyway, so... We all know she wanted to undo the whole No More Mutants bell thing, but Doctor Strange said that that bell couldn't be unrung, so he suggested that she might try to ring a bigger bell, which she did, and now, to undo what she'd done here, wait for it, they're going to have to ring an even bigger bell. Bell, 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 ring, ding, ring, ding, bell. Okay, so Doctor Strange agrees to help, but first he has to stop for a sassy chat with Wong, then we're finally off to the races. What it all eventually comes down to, and they're taking a long way to get here, is that whole odd rod that Magic picked up last issue, that one that she was just baffled by its beauty and needed to hold, and, you know, turned her into a demon. First, Doctor Strange makes it so the mutant zombies can't leave the island, so there's no way off Genosha for them. Then, this rod will be there for about 30 days, and when it dissipates, so too will Wanda's original, not mutant in origin, hex thingy from issue one. Wanda wonders what might happen should anyone try and actually go to Genosha within those 30 days, and, uh, hey, we can answer that. If that were to happen, a really awful and forced cash-in storyline might just break out, which is exactly where we are. Also, a stupid-looking giant plant zombie with a cabbage head might start running around the place yelling, Glore, glore, glore. Speaking of which, how about we go to the right now, the here and now, and find out what's going on. We do have, in fact, a giant plant zombie with a cabbage head yelling, Glore, glore, glore. And we get to see how all of our characters react to this monster. And this whole story is being played for laughs. Uh, this is supposed to be a funny haha, and unfortunately, Hickman just does not do it for me when it comes to his attempts at comedy. I know comedy is relative, and you know mileage may vary, but I can't think of a single thing that Hickman's wrote that I've laughed at. Some of the other writers on the Dawn of X stuff I've laughed at, but Hickman, no, no, very try-hard stuff here. So from Genosha to Krakoa, and Beast continues working alongside. We'll go with Opal. I think I think this is Opal. Which uh, reminds me, uh, when was the last time any of us saw Opal Tanaka? You know, because she was part of some stories even more boring than this one. I wonder if she's still kicking around anywhere. Anyway, so Beast, she, he's continuing to work alongside Opal. And he decides to swipe a bit of her technology while she's not paying attention. Now, it's clarified here that the Horde culture has ma actually managed to hack the Krakoan gateways. If you remember back in X-Men number 3... That was sort of what they were trying to figure out. 
And now this enables them to control those gateways so that they can pass through them despite not being mutants. And they can also apparently turn them off, kind of like they did here with the Krakoa-Genosha connection. And I gotta say, this is still a really good portrayal of Beast. Uh, he even looks like a different Beast. He's got like that same like winged hairdo like he had in the 90s. It's a much better Beast than what we usually get. Though, I mean, therein kind of lies a, a problem with uh, continuity and, <laughs> and linearity of storytelling, but we'll talk about that later. Anywho, he figures out what makes the horticulture gimmick tick and decides to make use of it himself. And so he opens a gateway and through it walks... Explodey Boy, but not the zombie version. This is an already resurrected one, complete with a, you know, actual non-rotting flesh, and also a jetpack. Beast sends him to Genosha, though I haven't the foggiest idea why. Let's follow Explodey Boy, and we'll go back to Genosha ourselves. Here, the mutants are continuing to dramatically pose while stuff happens around them. Explodey Boy flies in, and it looks like his jetpack might be powered by dirt. And it's. It doesn't look like it's propelled by any sort of combustion. It's just like dirt. Though I can't say for sure. He lands next to the Explodey Boy zombie version so they can have a chat. And he tells his undead self that it's just not cool to eat people. To which the zombie vomits all over the place. Which isn't funny. Not funny. No. They then talk a bit about, uh, you know, what it's like to be dead and what it's like to be alive again. And this really confuses things for me. Not not so much in the story, but let's go back to the Scarlet Witch. Just what in the hell was she trying to do? What was she even thinking? If Xavier's already resurrecting the victims of the Genosian genocide, then what in all hells was she trying to do? I mean, Xavier hasn't exactly been silent or quiet about what they're doing on Krakoa. And I mean, if anyone ought to have some sort of insider's knowledge, it'd be the friggin' Avengers, right? They would know. I suppose I could ask, is Wanda still an Avenger? Or is she just like a wandering lunatic these days? I guess it really doesn't matter. Though, let me just say, uh, I am thankful that the Avengers haven't been shoehorned into every other issues of, issue of this run, because uh, the 2010s were a very, very long decade of just that. Okay, so back to the conversation here, the explodey conversation. It goes from the broader sort of a thing to a more personal sort of chat. And I will say, for the first time yet... This series actually feels like uh, there might be some pages in it worth reading. It, it's it's pretty well done here. Uh, the living E.B. tells the undead E.B. about some stuff about it, uh, his home life here. Uh, that they're, he's getting along better with their parents. He had his first kiss with a girl that's totally out of their league. It's, it's a pretty cute thing. Though, it really doesn't make up for the fact that they thought it would be so LOL random to name this kid Explodey Boy. But... All that being said, it's not a half-bad little scene. I, I quite enjoyed it. Now, Living E.B. tells Undead E.B. that this is all going to eventually end, and so that all they can do for the moment is watch Demon Magic fight the giant Glore monster. Undead E.B.'s like, nah, I ain't going out like that, and he asks Living E.B. to hand over the jetpack. They then share a somewhat touching farewell before Zombie Splody Boy launches himself into the Glore monster's mouth and explodes. So, bada-bing, bada-boom, Glore Monster defeated. Now, as the dust settles, Demon Magic continues to proclaim herself as being the Zombie Queen of Genosha, or whatever stupid nonsense she was spouting off about last issue. I mean, is she a godhead? I think she's a godhead. That sounds Hickman-y enough to, to be a thing. But, let's remember what Doctor Strange said earlier in this issue. 
this whole mess would go away after 30 days. And right now, the clock's ticking. And uh, Doctor Strange actually said that, get this, 29 days, 23 hours, and 59 minutes ago. Oh, how convenient. The clock finally ticks over, the odd rod dissipates, and Bingo Bango magic returns to her normal self. Beast looks on and comments about how embarrassing this must be for her, to which she proclaims that she regrets nothing. Now, with the mess over and done with, the mutants head home. And we get four highly decompressed pages because we're approaching the finish line and we gotta at least pretend to justify the fact that you paid $5 for this. Beast basically narrates how important it is to go on living. And we close out with Wanda sitting in her study reading a book and probably figuring out the next way she's going to concoct something really stupid and ultimately pointless that we will all have to sit through soon enough. Finally, the end. Next episode, finally, X-Factor. But let's let's get Empire out of the way, at least the, the main miniseries here. And I will start by saying, I'll admit it. I didn't hate this issue as much as the first three. And I actually didn't hate the issue at all. It wasn't half bad, in fact. Um, We really didn't deserve being put through the first three issues to get here, but, I mean, we gotta take the bad with the good, I suppose. Before going into this issue, let's get all the meta stuff out of the way first, right? This story didn't need four issues to be told. This story didn't need to cost 20 American dollars to be read. This story didn't add anything to the greater Marvel Universe, nor to the X-Men. This was still a grift and an exploitation of Marvel and or X-Men completionists. If this story absolutely needed to be told, it could have been fit into a single regular-sized issue of X-Men Volume 5. And I mean, we're going to be getting a couple of Empire issues of that coming up pretty quick as well. We'll see that in Episodes 88 and 97, in fact. So all that to say... This wasn't worth the price. Anybody who paid full price to this, for this was a victim of theft. And with every sale of this that Marvel made, they were stealing money. Okay? Now, in fairness, I did hear from uh, either Jason or Damien, I believe, uh, when I was reaching out a few episodes ago trying to figure out what people thought of this uh, series because I was afraid I was being too negative about it. I did learn from someone that the X-Men weren't originally going to cross over with Empire, but... I guess this was a either an editorial or a marketing mandate, and the fact that we're dealing with plants and so much of the Dawn of X uh, milieu is wrapped up in plants that it would only make sense for the X-Men to be involved in it. So this wasn't the original intention. This is an order that, if what I was being told is accurate, this is an order that came from on high, and uh, the Dawn of X brain trust was just trying to make the best of it, and... Hey, you know, they, they got four issues out, which is probably what all they were told to do. So I, I can't fault them too much for what happened, because uh, they weren't planning on this anyway. But still, $20 for this. I mean, I paid half price for it, and still I feel like I was ripped off. So if you paid 20 bucks for it, I, I apologize. I hope nobody did it to follow along with this show. If, if that was the case, I'd feel very, very bad. Okay, now with that all done and dusted, what did we have here? Well, we had a fairly well-told conversation between two versions of the same character. And like I said, it was pretty cute for the most part. But, and this is a Chris problem, I felt it was tempered by the fact that our creators insisted on calling this character Explody Boy. 
and this is just a Chris problem. I mean, because call him anything else, I'd have been on board. Explodey Boy, to me, is way too pandering. It's retweet bait, pure and simple. And I'm sure it worked as such, so, I mean, hats off to them. But Explodey Boy is just such a stupid name, and uh, not the sort of thing I need in my life. I'm still not quite sure what the in-story point of it was. Like, was the initial intention for the zombie EB to blow himself up inside the Glore monster's mouth? If so, okay. But we've already seen EB blow stuff up twice at this point, so why not just ask him to do it? And do his powers blow him up too, or just his surroundings? I don't know if we've got any clarification on that, or even if it matters. I mean, will we ever see him again? I kind of hope not. Though it wouldn't surprise me to see him in the background of a panel or two moving forward. I, I guess, you know, we'll have to wait and see. Back to Beast. I still quite enjoyed this take on Beast. It's almost like the Beast we're getting here and the one that we're getting in X-Force are two completely different characters. But I gotta assume that our head of X is at least reading X-Force, right? Uh, maybe not, because this Beast is actually written well. What else? What else? Um, Magic. She's kind of annoying here. Uh, I still can't get a bead on what her character is. She's almost written as a parody of the Claremontian strong female protagonist. It feels like she's veered into into parody. Um, though for the most part, this story was an attempt at being funny haha, so for all I know, she was purposely being written as over the top. I don't know. Uh, the old ladies kind of stayed in their own corner here. I don't even know if any of them even got a line of dialogue, not that I'm complaining. Uh, the Doctor Strange scene, though integral, was kind of irksome. I, I don't read Doctor Strange. Uh, is he always this much of a snarky a-hole? I, I almost felt like we were reading like Tony Stark dressed as Doctor Strange there for a minute. Or, I guess, is snarky a-hole just like normal gear for Marvel heroes these days? It's like, hey, they like sarcasm in them movies, let's, uh, let's make everybody sarcastic. Oh well. It led to a convenient and contrived ending, which I would complain more about if I, you know, if I wasn't in such a rush to get to the end of this mess. Because honestly, any ending would have been better than this continuing on a single, <laughs> another issue. Uh, let's wrap up by talking about the art. Um, I really liked it. Once again, going back to the Beast, this was the best he's looked in ages. He actually looked like himself. Instead of having that sort of like furry but bald look, if that makes any sense. Like where it's like his hair on top is like really short. He looks like he's bald, kind of. And I mean, he looked different here, and that's a good thing and a bad thing. Because, yes, I do like that take. I like this look. But it's also a sign that the artist responsible just didn't care enough to check in with any of the current day reference materials. You'd almost think an editor or four, or maybe a head of X might have like noticed and said something about it. Which begs the question, should I even bother bringing stuff like that up anymore? I mean, if they don't care, why should I, right? I'm just happy that this isn't Carol Danvers with, you know, where she looked different in every single panel for several years. So this is at least a side thing, I, I suppose, you know. I can shout into the wind until, you know, until I run out of shout. But uh, what good would that do any of us? Oh, well. Overall... If you can find the Explodey Boy chat with himself, that's probably worth a look. And I'm sure that that's been tumbled, retweeted, or whatever several times over, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. As for the rest of this issue and series, you don't need it in your life. You really don't. Uh, to put it another way, 
If you ever find yourself sent to hell, where I'm assuming there will be only two things you can read, and one would be Fallen Angels, and the other would be Empire X-Men. So if you are ever sent to this hell, my advice to you would be read Fallen Angels twice. Okay, now that is my final word on this miniseries. Let's go to the mailbag here. It's a short one today, just one message, and it's from Damien, and he's talking about Wolverine number three. Damien says, It's weird that this is the last part of a storyline, but doesn't feel at all final. The only resolution is that we learn that Russia is somehow the big villain behind the series. Maybe Vladimir Putin is a vampire and it's all one story. I'm surprised that a Disney company is characterizing an actual country as evil. Do they not buy Disney merchandise in Russia? And I'm glad you mentioned that because I thought I was being too sensitive to it. Because I noticed that every single time in these Dawn of X books, and I don't know about the wider Marvel universe, but it's always Russia. In Marauders, it's Russia. In in X-Men, it's Russia. In Wolverine, it's Russia. I think in X-Force, there was stuff with the with the Russian armor. Everywhere, yeah, we, we actually have a uh, Colossus and Omega Red story coming up pretty soon. It does feel very pointed. It feels very weird that Russia is suddenly the safe target for, like, everything. I, I don't understand that. I, I don't know if there's any people from Russia listening right now. I would venture to say no. But uh, if so, uh, please write in and let us know <laughs> what's going on here. How are, the, how are these books being received by uh, you and yours? Because it's, uh, it's very pointed. Very, very pointed. Uh, Damien continues. I'm presuming that we're meant to see all the events of the last issue as an illusion created by Quentin Quire to snare the pale girl, but it should have been much clearer. Absolutely. Um, Because none of that made it. It was so jarring. And I I think even if you read this all in one go, it still would be jarring. It still wouldn't be very clear because we see, uh, what's his face, Bannister. We see him get gutted, and then the next time we see him, he's okay. And there really is no sort of uh, A to B. It's just like an A then B, not an A to B. It's very, very strange. And the Quentin stuff, I don't, I, we don't know enough about the pale girl, I, and I would figure that, I don't know, maybe I'm just confusing or conflating ethereal-ism with, uh, with you know, inability to be, um, you know, taken in by illusions here. But, uh, yeah, it was very, very opaque in in the storytelling and was probably something that appeared very clever in concept but in the execution it just uh yeah it missed it missed uh, damien continues talking of the pale girl i really thought they were going to reveal her to be a dream form of the sick daughter when the text page said she couldn't be read by professor x i was sure i was right I really think someone needs to stage an intervention with Benjamin Percy about his text pages. I'm sure he's misread the maximum number of words as a minimum. <laughs> no joke, right? It's a... Uh... <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, the text pages in X-Force are um, a bit much. Uh, I mean, these aren't even X-Force. This is Wolverine, but X-Force is just as bad. I mean, in X-Force, we had a whole scene play out in a te- in a in a text page. Uh yeah, these, uh, these info pages are a bit much. They really are. And they don't really say a whole heck of a lot. I don't know what we were, what we needed from, I believe we had a conversation between the X-Desk and maybe Bannister. I think that I'm from remembering, right? And out of that, nothing really came up. Nothing came up that was really relevant outside of the fact that, okay, they know that he's working with Wolverine. That could have been said in a panel. That could have been said in 
two lines instead of an entire page. Damien continues, Ultimately, I really enjoyed reading this issue, but when you go back over it, there's very little to get your teeth into. It's just a series of fun scenes well drawn, and I'll take it. And you're right. You're right. This is a... This is a beautiful book with a lot of fun scenes. Um, some scenes that were a little cringy, the Magneto getting drunk one uh, in particular. So yeah, it definitely has merit and it deserves to exist, I guess. If only the story was like a little bit more linear or a little bit more, or a little bit less opaque in it, in the telling, I think I would have gotten far more out of this uh, than than I did. So uh, I'm also not really looking forward to what's next because. Vampire stories do not do it for me, so we'll uh, we'll hope for the best. We'll uh, you know keep our fingers crossed and hope that that one comes through a little bit more clear than this one did. Uh, out of the two stories we got in Wolverine number one, um, yeah, I didn't care for either of them really. So uh, <laughs> I don't know. I was gonna say maybe this one was better, but I think I actually enjoyed this one less because of my my vampire. Uh, you know, a version, I suppose. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on uh, Wolverine number three, Damien. It's always very nice to hear from you. Now, if anyone else would like to reach out and, you know, say hello or talk about a book or tell me how negative I'm being about uh, Empire colon X-Men and how it's, uh, you know, a solid gold 10 out of 10 in your book, uh, you can do so. You can reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. There's also xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us about all sorts of stuff over at 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you can check out the complete audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's where we'll leave it for today. Uh, onward and upward from here. Uh, we got the Empire miniseries out of the way, and uh, we're going to be jumping into the final of our Wave 2 Dawn of X books with X-Factor next episode. Really, really looking forward to finally sinking our teeth into that one. But uh, one more giant thank you to everyone for sharing your time with me today. It, it is absolutely humbling to have uh, such great listeners here. It really, really means the world to me. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. <laughs>